Crash Chords Podcast. I, of course, am Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. And we have a very special guest here, the incredible and talented, wonderful Anya Keister is joining us of burlesque production and performance fame. Yay! Before we begin, <laughs> can you attest that you're incredible and talented? Yes! Okay. Well, I mean, to be modest about it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like the yes! I mean, yes. There's no place Right, for... what am I supposed to do? No, 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 there's no place for modesty on this show, all right? <laughs> yeah. John would know. Yeah. Um, so I'm very excited to have Anya on. Um, I know Anya a long time through the burlesque community. Um, I think our meeting point is both my wife, Sarah, and uh, Nasty Canasta. Correct. And um, it's her burlesque show that she produces, D20 Burlesque, is actually the one I knew about first. Before I ever started working in burlesque, when I still just went to shows, there was this legendary nerdy burlesque show <laughs> called D20 Burlesque. And uh, I remember seeing it, though. I don't remember what show I saw. Four, five, four years ago? How was it the first Whedon show, maybe? Oh, it might have been. That sounds yeah. familiar. Wait, the first what show? Whedon. Tr- Tribute Whedon. to Joss Whedon. Oh, oh, that is, that is really odd, and really awesome in, this, in a whole different <laughs> you, way. You held us up to this. Yeah. <laughs> so no, you're talking. You're able to draw from Buffy. Uh, you're able to draw from Firefly. This is a few years ago, so he'd already made the first Avengers. So you got mm-hmm. that working on. I don't think we need any uh, lectures on the influence of Joss Whedon on this podcast. Yeah, that's true. We have talked about him before. We're going to do a separate podcast now. You know that, right? So we've had other burlesque performers on the show before, but um, we've not really engaged in production of burlesque. Um, I know a lot of a lot more performers now are getting into burlesque production, but you've been doing it a long time. What would you say was the hardest thing? Were you always a burlesque producer, or did you start performing like everybody else and then move into production? I performed for about a year, and during that year, I helped as a stage manager and helping with behind-the-scenes stuff for Doc Wasabasco. Okay. So when I decided that I wanted to possibly start producing my own show, I went to him, and he kind of talked me through a lot of stuff, and from that point on, I've been producing, and D20 Burlesque will be having our five-year anniversary March of 2016. Awesome. That's that's fantastic. Do you find that it's harder to produce than perform, or they both have separate difficulties? I think they're separate difficulties. It's about pulling on different strengths of yourself. I would say that over the time, I probably now find myself having having more ease with producing than I do with performing uh, just because producing is a lot of the same tasks over and over again with slight tweaking whereas performing is a different artistic expression every time so it's kind of you know doing the same cooking the same recipe or making up a new recipe Sure. I know that also there are large variations from act to act that you do. One of my personal favorites is your Cthulhu act Mm -hmm. that you do in a giant green bodysuit. Correct. Um, Want to tell us a little about that? (laughs) So so what I wanted to ask is like, so for that, that act has very great awesome music for it. Uh, I said, I said, her to tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're um, a fair time, Matt. So one of the, yeah, one of the acts that I'm most well known for, I've been performing it for over four years at this point. I've traveled to the country with it. Uh, oh, and, and I just performed it in Toronto. So now I can say I've internationally performed it, uh, is a Cthulhu tribute number, 
where I am a cheeky, coquettish Cthulhu lady who comes out on stage. Coquettish. And coquettish. Not anything I'm, I would I'm have described. adorable and charming. <laughs> exactly. And it came from the fact that there was... Uh, I later found out that there was already Cthulhu acts, but I wanted to come up with a way that you could have a Cthulhu on stage that would be adaptable for the audience that just wouldn't come off as a regular monster. Okay. And it was one of those things where if people know Cthulhu, they're going to think it's really, really hilarious. If not, people are just going to think I'm like a funny monster. So It sounds really like a Sesame Street bit. I'm just a funny monster. <laughs> right, yeah. You're an everyday monster. Where did you come up with the idea to do Cthulhu specifically? That's a fairly narrow point for uh, uh, drawing inspiration from horror. Well, it's because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right answer. Correct. In uh, short. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge Lovecraft fan. So I got into him via role-playing games. And then I was loved the source material. And I loved the kind of Lovecraftian horror and the cosmic myth- mythos and stuff like that. And so then I just started reading all Lovecraft stuff. So when I was going to burlesque shows and I was seeing people being a sexy cat and a sexy nurse, I was like, well, obviously I want to be a sexy Cthulhu. Because why not? Obviously. Does With an act like that, does the act come first or does the music come first? Or are they kind of intermingled? With that one, the act concept came first. And then I kind of searched for the music. So I do it to dream uh, dream a little dream of me. <laughs> the Doris Day version. That is great reference right there. That yeah. I, I really like that. Star shining bright above you. Mm-hmm. Dream a little dream of me. <laughs> Does this count as reference art? We talk about reference art on the podcast, but if, I mean, if sure. you're just like you know on stage, like referencing things, it's a different it's a different attitude. People have that about music. They don't think about that uh, in, with respect to burlesque, only because burlesque is I'm not going to say it's a new art form, but it's a reburgeoning art form. And I'd say this is the time period in which people are finally doing different things with it. Sure. Whereas it had just been burlesque up to a point. Well, yeah, there's a lot more, and I see it. I mean, I've seen it a lot of acts. Uh, a lot of acts at a lot of shows are more about concepts and interesting takes. They're not, you know, there are still classic acts with a fan dance or just a beautiful dress or beautiful outfit, but there are also some really interesting integrations of unique concepts to to an older style or newer style. Well, going with a more classical approach, that would just be one of the mer- uh, many themes that you can have to the show. Uh, D20 is... A kind of an, an an odd like combination of the nerd and burlesque brought together, which I never would have thought of before. I don't know how many people would think of something like that because um, they seem kind of like diametrically opposed to one yeah. another in the more I, out there social spheres and everything. Oh, like that. totally. I mean, nerds. I mean, now we have like nerd chic and all that kind of stuff. But for a while, it was like nerds are weird and sexy and live in basements. And then burlesque <laughs> performers are these amazing, beautiful goddesses filled, covered in rhinestones <laughs> and glitter. And so, so you're just out to say, hey, screw your world. <laughs> yeah. So nerdlesque is kind of a great fusing of them, where you have some performers who are still doing these amazing glittery rhinestone outfits and doing all that stuff with working in like subtle nerd references, and then you have people who are just doing straight up like weird nerdy stuff, but it's also burlesque. So it's a bag of tricks. I guess. Yeah. Uh, to go back because I, we skirted on something that I kind of wanted to ask you about further. That whole concept between uh, performing versus producing. Do you find that you get more creative control from one or the other? You start to answer that, but I want to get into that for a Um, I mean, it, it's the difference between curating an art show and being an artist. You, 
as an artist, you get to kind of create this product that you bring to the world and some people are going to be in for it. You might fall under like a thing. Um, well, that's what I love yeah. about the, that's what I love about the question. That being my own question is, <laughs> is that, uh, um, Thanks, Steve. In, on, on one hand, it's like, if, if you're looking at specifically the producer, then it's easy to say, well, they get the final word because the performer on stage has to kind of kowtow to them. Well, it's like, if that's what you're asking me to do, then that's what I'll do. But then in many ways, really, doesn't the performer get the last word? Because if they can reshape it into whatever they want, then really, they're, they're the last line of defense. Correct, correct. Um, so over the years, because I typically will perform in each of the shows that I produce as well. In the beginning, I was performing two times for every show. So I was two new acts every month. That was ridiculous. And plus producing above that. Um, I now typically do one act per show. Uh, but as a producer... I will often, so I get to choose the themes and then we'll cast accordingly. And I will often put myself last in regards to what act to perform because I would rather the performers get to do something they're passionate about because um, it's going to be harder to draw them in. It's a theme that I love, so I can, I will have multiple options of what to do. Um, so I guess you could say my artistry is, you know, it's, I'm condensing it a little bit because I'm allowing other people to do their thing first, and then I'll say, okay, I'll do it now. I'll yeah, show. but you're still the, the concept behind the show. It's still your baby of the show. You're just having the actors create the dialogue. Correct, yeah. Um, do oh, you... but is it patented? <laughs> I do not want to get into copyright. Okay. <laughs> okay. Don't worry, uh, you have time. This doesn't go up to Friday. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next thing I wanted to ask as far as producing the shows go, so you've done a lot of different um, themes and concepts. I had the pleasure of doing Sound for D20 finally uh was that this year? I don't remember when that Game oh, of Thrones show was. It was a Game of Thrones show. I think it was this year, but this year's been a blur. And that was really great <laughs> because I got to curate most of the music for the show as well. And it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite theme or do you kind of just roll with it and you like everything? I mean, obviously you're coming up with the theme, so they're from your heart. But yeah. is there one show in particular you can think of that you were like, wow, that was really fantastic? Um, I mean, a lot of the ones that I really love you'll see because they'll show up multiple mm -hmm. years and it'll become an annual show. So... Uh, uh, our, our burlesque tributes to Lovecraft are, of course, one yeah, of my sure. favorites. Because those are ones where it's actual acts based on his stories. Oh, that's so cool. So it's really specific. Uh, those are some of my favorites. The apocalyptic and dystopian shows are some of my favorites because those are my favorite. That's my favorite genre. Uh, the Whedon shows are always fun because it's always neat to see how many times can somebody do an act based on this character. And it's right. always fresh and new and fun. Uh, you mean the Will Whedon shows? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> wrong Weedon. Yeah, wrong Weedon. Yeah, uh, um, <laughs> I'm derailing everyone. Just, uh, and, but I would say probably one of my favorite shows is our December show, which is the fan favorites one. So as soon as we do our November show, I put out a survey and anybody can answer it. And it just lists all of the acts that went on for that entire year. And they oh, vote wow. for which ones they like. And then I try to book like the top. 10, 11, or 12 acts. Oh, that's awesome. And they perform it. So it's complete fan service. And we are very upfront about it. <laughs> this show is complete fan service. It's a gift to the fans. They choose the acts. We get to see what it is. So that's a really fun one. Because I, I guess it's cool because I'm out of control for some yeah. of the curation then. Hey, so. we can relate. They have their own fan pick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's really cool, though. I've not heard of other shows in the city that do something like that. And I think that's really unique to kind of give the power. 
I mean, on any creative project, giving power to the fans or, or to, you know, the audience can go really well or could be a nightmare. And so giving that freedom is exhilarating and really cool. And I, I like that idea that you kind of go, hey, guys, what do you like? And then we'll put it in the show. I think yeah. that's really neat. I have one question about these themes, though. Are there any themes you have not yet gotten to do or... Can you give us a preview on some new stuff that might be coming out? What's in the to-do pile? Yeah. Um, Specifically, is there a Kurt Vonnegut one? Because I love Kurt. <laughs> I really do. I, I'm a huge fan of Kurt Vonnegut. We don't get a lot into specific, especially not literary. We try to stay more in, like, the general nerdy fandoms. And I understand you can be a nerd about Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, and that's where, like, Francine Lose a Dream is great. Yeah. Because she's, she's doing nerdlesque, but it's all about David Lynch. Which, in the beginning, had me on my, like, nerdy... Like, like, that's not a comic book like that's not a video game that's not nerdy but it is it's because yeah. she's passionate and she's really she knows the details she knows everything about it um so i don't know if i'll ever do a kurt vonnegut one uh, <laughs> i am really excited in february for valentine's day i always try to come up with something around that that's not just like a valentine's day show mm -hmm. so this year borrowing um from a, a concept that epic win had done a couple of years epic win burlesque um mm -hmm. rest in peace uh <laughs> uh Born from them, and because I had performers who came to me saying they really, really wanted to do this act, we're going to do a fan fiction show. Oh, nice! So it's going to be like duets or other ones about characters being in love. That's that's awesome. So there's that's really, cute. really weird stuff that's going to come oh, during sure. that show. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your music background. Obviously, you you oh. listen to a lot of different stuff. You're very passionate about the band you brought us today, which we'll get into in a bit. But um, where did where do your origins with music start? When did you first start listening? Was it when you were very young? Is there specific bands growing up that you uh, really attached to? Mm -hmm. uh, I was raised very much so on classic rock. Mm -hmm. uh, I I feel like I have a very good memory. My family might argue about that, <laughs> but uh, I do distinctly remember. So my dad would have this huge record collection, and we would put it on records all the time, uh, typically of classic rock. And we would play the game on when we would do like long road trips. Is he would play like the first five seconds of a song, and he would turn it off and try to have me sing along or name the band or name the the song title. That's awesome. Uh, so I got really good at being able to quick remember stuff. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, and then in high school, I did a lot of uh, you know I played viola I played saxophone I played guitar I was in jazz band I was in marching band wow. I was in orchestra I was in all of those uh, when I went to school I did a minor in music with know, all with, of that stuff with uh, with jazz singing with all actually. that behind you jazz like singing oh, that's the, awesome this is just yeah. a minor portion of my life even yeah. though it's like 12 hours of my day <laughs> <laughs> yeah I did jazz singing because I wasn't good enough at the other instruments to do it but I'm like I can sing that seems fine uh, I mean it kind of ruined me because <laughs> now I don't like to sing in public anymore Aww. it's okay <laughs> um, but you know uh, music has always been something that I've been very passionate about and it's it's interesting that now that I, as I'm getting older, I find because I'm not seeking out music as much, I kind of have like, these are the songs I like to listen to. And then mm -hmm. occasionally something will come up and I'll listen to it. So that's why podcasts like this are so important. Yeah. It's easy to get very complacent. And well, we I would mean, be a lot more complacent if it wasn't for this podcast, frankly. We've, we've talked about that a lot, that mm -hmm. we all were kind of in rut-ish is. And then doing this and all of us choosing and bringing guests who choose it's like oh we have like I never heard the the band you brought today until today and now I want to go back to their mm -hmm. discography so it, it, it serves a great purpose but I find a lot of my friends as they get older do the same thing it's like I like my music yeah. or it used to be like friend connections where it's like alright well I'll go with, I'll go to it on your word I trust word. James because James word. recommended yeah, this James great is, album James is my friend he brought the Godstick album last yeah. week actually he yeah. brought the original Godstick album uh, two years ago but you know 
it, now we actually do it more for the chore than anything else, but that works. It does Because work, then once the chore is like, all right, well, here's this completely new album that I've never heard of, and then all of a sudden you're just into it. And I think something, too, that has to do with the fact, so I've been living in New York for over six years now, and I feel like New York has made me listen to music less mm. because I don't drive. Well, so sure. I don't have a radio. So normally I would listen to all the college stations, and I'd pick up, and when I was growing up, I had, like, the radio, and then whenever a song would come on, I'd pull off on the side of the road, and I'd write it down <laughs> in a notebook, and then I'd go home on Napster, <laughs> I will I will agree regarding the New York comment that you know uh, there are a lot of people that I see you know they walk around in their commutes of course if they got bus rides they got subway rides they always have their headphones in I know Matt you make yeah. frequent use out of that that's something that I was never able to do personally only mm. because I find like I'm very easily distracted and I just I like the city so normally I'm just people watching I'm just like kind of taking the sights and then I can't I don't have the attention span for the music at that moment. I'd rather just go home and listen to my music there. So, yeah. you know, New York can actually kind of do that to you and make you a musical, perhaps for your commute, if you're like me. And then there's just the fact that you're going to be assau uh, assaulted by sound nearly constantly, exactly. whether or not it's music. And sometimes it is music. Someone's going to call out your be... name, you're jaywalking, and you're not thinking about it. Then all of a sudden, you're dead. You know, right, exactly. These happen. That exact problem that happens e that all exact the time. Same scenario. Daily. Um, my next question is because I'm always curious. I've, I, of course, as it's no secret to our listeners, that I've, I've worked in burlesque for quite some time now doing sound for different shows. And also, I'm an audience member because I love seeing the shows. Um, and so I've always asked performers how many acts they put together in a given year. Some it's a really high number. Some it's a really low number. I'm just curious, do you push yourself to make an insane amount of acts per year? Or do you kind of plan them each intricately one at a time and space it out? When I got started, I was making acts all the time. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I was doing like two a month. So I was like, God, I was doing like 24 acts a year. Wow. And most of them were one-offs because it was for a specific theme and I knew I was never going to do it again. Now now that I've been in the business for so long, <laughs> uh, that's a joke. I haven't been in the business very long <laughs> compared to other people. But now I'm at the point where uh, because I'm starting to do more festivals and I'm starting to tour more often, I'm focusing more on taking one act and making it better. Mm -hmm. So like every time I perform it, I'll add a few more things to it. And it's, it's more practice, so I'm more comfortable, so I can be a little bit more out there with the motions and things like that. So I, do, I don't make as many anymore. Um, Follow-up question then is, do you find that you have acts that were one thing when you started and they've completely evolved since and have changed drastically based on the original vision? Um, a little bit. One of my current favorite acts to perform originally started as a duet mm -hmm. with another performer, and he didn't really want to do burlesque anymore, and so after, like, three years, I was just kind of like, hey, do you, are we ever going to revisit this? And he said no, and I was like, do you mind if I take it? And he said yeah. And and then I took it, and I kept the similar, th it's a, a Virgin Mary act, uh, where I'm a statue of the Virgin Mary, gotcha. and uh, and I come to life, kind of. Uh, burlesque, like always on the edge. <laughs> Uh, it's, it has a very surprising ending you would not expect. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was an act that has changed, and now, and now, luckily, I've gotten a chance to perform it at, at festivals and kind of all over the world. So I'm really not all over the world. Uh, <laughs> I've gotten to perform it international, in a lot of, international. Toronto. I've got to perform it in a lot of different places. So I'm actually really happy to have seen that one change a lot over time. Well, piggybacking off of his question, uh, was there any case where audience response actually sort of dictated your, your next act where it was more of a like, eh, maybe this doesn't work or this is a wild success. Got to continue. Is that an active choice? Uh, yeah, sometimes. A lot of times because You could say no, you could say screw them. <laughs> I know, no, I, it's not a whole lot because the thing is, is like, there's so many hours that go into it that you don't change it a lot. I will say my Cthulhu act, for the first few years I performed it, I 
would slightly tweak it a little bit every now and then and see and you know like first I was just well of course because not everyone is a fan and not everyone would get it immediately yeah um, so yeah well so in the beginning it was like I was Cthulhu and then I was like Cthulhu and I had a cape that was like my wings and then at one point I had like a baby Cthulhu with me on stage I was like that's a little bit so I like reeled it back um, that's why that almost goes back to like John's question like well are you doing any Vonnegut you could just uh, hop from from you know franchise to franchise but at some point you're just gonna go deeper into esoterica not to say i think everyone should probably at least know vonnegut but yeah. still you know you gotta be careful about what you're nerdy about when you're deciding to broadcast it to a very very diverse venue it's just yeah. you gotta know your audience yeah. i will say the interesting one about that one though is the first time i performed it uh i'm wearing a full suit so when my pasty falls off it's completely fine i'm still covered with a suit uh but it fell off and the audience like went crazy. So that now is actually part of the act. Because I come out oh. and, I, and I only have one pasty on. So oh. I like show the pasty. I show the other one. There's like a little nipple drawn on. I react to the fact that I rip off the other pasty and I like rub my chest. Because I'm wearing a full suit and a yeah, bra underneath. Yeah. So it's I'm not doing anything lewd. But the audience gets to see a person like pretending to rub their nipples on stage. And they're so excited. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what a running gig. <laughs> um, so... As you said, as you got older, your your music tastes tended to focus. Um, leading up into the actual review for this week, mm-hmm. the band that you brought us, which is um, the album "Beat the Champ" by the Mountain Goats, Yay. did you get into them at the earlier part of their career, or did you kind of discover them later and then go backwards? I got into them because of my girlfriend. Uh, uh, when I met her, uh, so this would have been 2006, uh, is when I first heard the Mountain Goats. She played me some music from. I did not like it at all. <laughs> she said, no, give it a chance. She gave me a mixed CD, or she gave me a, like a copy of a CD. I listened to it. I did not like it at all. Oh, no. And then... This is why we have year in reviews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just and then, to see what changes. And then fast forward, it, what it was is it was the second major album that came out, Sweden, which was from 95. And... Uh, it was his earlier stuff. It was his lo-fi stuff. It was a lot of yelling. It was very nasally, and I was just like, "Oh, I don't, I don't know if I like this at all." And then we fast forward like two years, and uh, when Heretic Pride came out, and she put it on, I absolutely loved it. And I was like, "This is so great! What is this?" And she's like, "Oh, it's the Mountain Goats." I was like, oh, damn! <laughs> <laughs> and at nice. that point, because um, they were then it was their like their post 4AD record label releases, which had a higher production value and there's I know a the bit record more, label, yeah. yeah, and a little bit more instrumentation. And I was like, "Oh, I really like that one." So then I was solid for the rest of the albums, and I slowly kind of went back and started listening to the stuff again. And now I'm just a huge fan of all of it. So you took this all academic-like. I appreciate that. Yeah. Not everyone goes there, they hear like one song. It's just like, I like this band. Yeah. Like, no, you heard a song. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, the group itself. Uh, it was formulated by uh, the front man? Yes, uh, John Darnielle. John Darnielle. Uh, oh, I love this because I get to tell the story of him. <laughs> uh, so he started playing around 1991. He was a nurse in a hospital for teenagers with mental illness. And he would work there during the day. And then he had a boombox and he had a guitar and he would sit outside and he would just play music and record it. And then he would like let the kids listen to it. Uh, and so eventually then he was releasing just like cassettes cause he was recording it on like a four track boombox thing. And it's in the earlier stuff you can hear the wheel. Oh, like turning. Yeah, oh, you I hear know. the wheel turn, and that's and that's that's one of the dividers amongst the fan is when you don't you know yeah, you hear the wheel. Like, too much production value <laughs> on this song. I can't hear that wheel. Um, but yeah, so in '94, then he, they uh, he released his first album. Over time, 
uh, he more members of the band have come. Peter Hughes was next on bass, and then John Worcester on drums. And now they have other people that come in and do the extra instrumentation. But he has been the person all along. He writes all the lyrics. He's doing most of the music. And he is a great guy. All right. <laughs> and all around. That's important, too. Um, and a great sell. And so, so then, I guess, asking you why you chose this album, it's simply because it's a new album by a band you really like, and you wanted to bring it to us. Yeah, yeah. When uh, I, Matt approached me about doing this show, he's just like, well, what kind of stuff do you want to do? And I wanted to make sure it was something that I knew a lot about and a band that I felt very passionate about so I could draw from the source material and kind of know my stuff. And so... It was Kanye West or the Mountain Goats, and we went with the Mountain Goats. I always hate when it comes down to those two choices. Yeah, right? Know? It's just tough. It comes uh, up a lot in life. Um, well, originally when Anya had uh, actually reached out to me about coming out on the show, she had said that she wanted to wait for the new Kanye West album, but when we arrived at September and uh, it was not out, we I asked if she would just pick another album instead. We do have a standing date for her to come back sometime in the future when that album does come out so we'll we'll look for that maybe right, in down, 20, <laughs> we'll look for that in 2016 probably but um so that's I, I like that you so meticulously chose an album that you knew you could talk about it's it's nice that you took a passion perspective for yeah. for bringing this album so as i said i just appreciate the academic approach <laughs> I, I, what, I admire it what the listener can't see is home is i have multiple papers in front of me with the dates and notes and stuff like that also for the record i am wearing a mountain goats t-shirt and i have a mountain goats tote bag on i am ultra nerd right now yeah, so, oh dear <laughs> i didn't know if this was like wearing God the t-shirt to when you go to see the band perform. i hate that myth i love doing that i wear i wear schaefer the dark lord shirts to all of his shows yeah, so i figure i'm like if i'm gonna do a podcast about the mountain goats i'm gonna wear a mountain goats t-shirt usually i'm the one doing the research and doing the spiels and the bands but when the guests come sometimes i just want to say like all right come on let, let's test them what do they know about what they brought they're just like i brought this thing found it a day ago um which is pretty much nelson logo nelson lugo yeah we're calling you out yeah, that's right trolling us with albums bad, right and left but he didn't do bad no, he didn't. No, he didn't do that. Bad. All right. So, so, what was the album that you brought us? Um, I brought "Beat the Champ." So, this came out on August, uh, April seventh of twenty fifteen. It is his newest release. If it's judging anything by the Mountain Goats, a new album will drop, like in a couple of months, because wow. uh, they tend to drop almost yearly with their stuff. We, we did uh, strike a comparison to "They Might Be Giants" earlier, perhaps at least only in terms of how prolific they yeah. are. I mean, just constantly shoveling out albums. Interestingly enough, it used to be a lot more common for uh, bands to release albums like you know Yearly. two a year, yeah, yeah or at least annually, uh, back in like the '60s and the '70s. And then starting around the '70s, people got a lot more serious about their production work. And then it's like now you're lucky if you get it three years. It's like what I said last uh, week about God's Sticks. It's like well, two years is a respectable gap at this point, and frankly, you're lucky if you get it in five with some bands and then there's the uh, well-known laziness of Maroon 5 and so forth <laughs> right so, so uh, yeah. after that little diatribe I mean, um, yeah and it's uh, it's a thing where it's a big discography <laughs> when yeah. I was when I was writing down the notes I'm like okay 15 albums this is the 15th uh, album come out it's like no and I'm writing them down like no I know that there's like there's there's definitely like there's, there's albums that aren't on here and then I can you hear it up. the papers crumpling yeah. <laughs> I like it. I was the like, work oh, was done this is their 15th studio album but that's not including the 21 EPs and singles that they also uh, released as well as the compilation oh this is a this is deja vu to they might be giants yeah, I remember reading that, thing, that, yeah. that that same opener was like uh, something like 125 compilations that's crazy all right, well, let's get into it. Beat the Champ by the Mountain Goats. Now, of course, I was coming into this with a little bit of a different perspective. I didn't know uh, the discography, as it were. Mm -hmm. So 
when it started out with the very first track, South Southwestern Territory, you have this very nice, very earnest piano intro. It seemed very simple to start out with, but then you get these little layers. And I initially took this as a more a much more modern band. Well, of course, they are modern. They're doing this now, so you're hearing it <laughs> in the present. Thank you, Steve. Yes, Thank you for that explanation. It's not a time warp. But, you know, I, I took it as something that was more fresh in the alt scene, especially through their instrumentation. Um, I was quickly surprised. By the time uh, the vocal stepped in here, it came in concurrently with an upright bass. And I stressed the word concurrent. They came at the exact same time, and the the, the result of this was this, this pluck that's like, along with his voice, there's this depth of register that was just so warm and so lovely for the first few seconds of an album. It's almost like a lump in your throat, and, mm. and you feel your heart sink almost that early on, which I was absolutely adoring. And then following that, we get the next lovely layer, and that's these two clarinets that step in, and I believe they're harmonizing in thirds, don't hold me to that, but I was <laughs> already in love with just the choice of ensemble. We don't see instrumentation like this generally. Yeah, I mean... We happen to personally know a clarinet player who's very good, and that's Robert, who is on episode... Episode 136. Steve is like the rain man of episode <laughs> numbers. It's amazing. It amazes me still to this day. Um, and so he plays clarinet uh, regularly with Eli August and the Band in Buildings, which is one of the millions of bands he's in. Um, but I don't often hear it commonly. Besides Eli August, who I do listen to quite a bit, it's just lately anyway, in the myriad of albums we've been listening to, I haven't heard it a lot. I agree with Steve. It really does give this kind of soothing, warm feel that really sets a, a tone for the the intro, at least, that you're like, oh, this is nice. And that's over the fundamental, which I also kind of skirted by, which is the piano. I yeah. said it was a very nice, earnest piano uh, intro, and that piano kind of persists uh, throughout the remainder of the song. The only thing I could maybe compare this to is a... Uh, a little bit of Ben Folds. Anybody get yeah, a little bit sure, of that? Sure, yeah. I just, would hear that influence. Just because piano, but there's He's more to like it than that. He's kind of like synonymous. It's yeah. also a little bit of his vocals, too. The vocal twang is in the right like tenor range as Ben Folds. It's also the way he, he structures his rhyming scheme. That was something that caught me almost right away. He goes with a double, triple kind of a setup as he's going along. View Avenue, then Made Brigade Motorcade. The pacing that he uses with this around the rhythm that he's been building, it's... A, a little bit more conversational. It's yeah. a little bit more talking to the audience, explaining something to the audience as, as sort of like a Sesame Street kind of a theme, but still with adult story and adult content. Yeah, that's actually a really good really, way to put it. Really quality uh, choice of words. He, he does have a good, uh, a good lyrical slant in what he writes. A lyrical slant, a, a sort of a... Slang slant, but it's not really slang. It's more, I just call it sort of natural speak. I would I would more generally refer to it as a kind of uh, theater speak that you also find in uh, Ben Folds, and that they, they just edge more on the side of plain speak uh, rather than the full-on, like, sing-songy fashion that you'd find in a lot of other pop. Um, and also the fact that it's framed, uh, these natural vocals are framed by these other instruments. They almost feel like, like, like paint strokes just for him being the character, a little portrait in the center. Speaking of character, I think this is a good point at the very beginning of the album to talk about the content of the album and the yep. song. So Beat the Champ is actually, the album cover is a very cartoonish drawing of a wrestler in the ring. It looks very vibrant. It's, you know, the animation very is really nice. old school kind of luchador kind of a yeah. style slant to it. The sort of thing that you would see in like the quote typical Mexican match, uh, wrestling match. And it's also located in the content itself of the song. When it got to the line, and I didn't notice it right away, even though I was listening to words, when I got I to the line... I didn't notice this at all, but if, I should stress I'm not a wrestling fan, so <laughs> lots of different perspectives here. Nearly drive Danny's nose back into his brain, 
All the cheap seats go insane. <laughs> Keep my eyes open and try to think straight. No one drives on the 60 this late. Feel like the last person alive. That line right there. All the cheap seats. Like driving into the brain, that's mm. violence. But the cheap seats. If When I start looking back on it, other lines, standing in that cold, empty hall. I mean, there's a lot of referential material that's not really in your face. Yeah. So he's already presenting subtly the very idea of what the what the song, and, and to the greater extent, what the album is going to be. And I like it. It's not like, oh, here's wrestling. No, he kind of introduces it in a very sweet way. Well, that's just the thing. Like, I'm almost inclined to say that there's this comedic twist to the to the fact that obviously people don't normally associate wrestling with this particular brand of music very uh very tender very expertly composed but i i'm inclined not to really go so far as to say that because i don't want to belittle what he's built the fact that he even chose this means that he takes it very and almost in a self-serious manner and that's that's kind of important you're inclined to laugh and then you're like oh this is this is actually really sad and really heartfelt you kind of want to just be immersed into his world even if you were not uh, previously exposed to the world yourself. Yeah, it's what's really interesting about him is that when you see him on stage, he's just a very normal guy. Um, he likes to banter. He likes to talk a lot during his things. He's just a very normal guy, but he has a lot of really interesting um, interests in things that do not necessarily come off when you see him. Um, he's a huge metal fan, like super duper into like all the really intense metal. He'll often uh, like start the shows by having like metal playing and then he walks <laughs> on and then it's like, hey, here's some indie folk for you. Um, he's a huge fan of boxing. In fact, uh, his Tumblr page is called uh, the William Caxton Fan Club. He's been really mm. open about his love of boxing and bare knuckle boxing and all that kind of stuff. Wow. So when it was leaked that he was going to be doing this album and he's like, it's going to be an album about wrestling. You have like the split second of like, what? And it's like, oh, that completely makes sense for John Darniel. Of you, course he loves like luchador small circuit wrestling. <laughs> you gotta love musicians that have a lot of just influences in general in addition to a lot of musical influences mm -hmm. specifically because then you'll just find all these random things and then people in their head try to like blend them together like, no, that that's metal clarinet right there. That, but yeah. it's not really what's happening. And he's just, he's in a separate world in each and every case. He can sort of partition uh, what he's mm -hmm. doing at any given time time and i think another interesting thing too about this album is that so in the scheme of the discography of the mountain goats in the beginning everything was just a very specific narrative it's a story there's song cycles about like there's a thing called the alpha couple where there's a whole album about them but every now and then an album will have a song about this couple there's there's all of these really long kind of stories that go on or individual ones um and it rarely gets autobiographical there's about like three albums that have some autobiographicalness to them, like Tallahassee does. Um, oh no, sorry, Tallahassee is the alpha couple. We Shall Be Healed is semi-autobiographical. The Sunset Tree is completely about growing up with an abusive father. Um, and every now and then one will sink in, but this album was neat because it's kind of a mix of, it's, a, it's about wrestling, but he himself also says that it's about the things he's going through. Uh, when he posted about the launch of it in January, he said, the wrestling songs, several of which, surprise, surprise, are really more about death and difficult to navigate interior spaces than wrestling. And I think See, that... See, and that, I, to be honest, that almost leaps out to me before the wrestling stuff. And of course, wrestling fans are going to think this is ridiculous. You know, that, sure. that's, the, that's the bullshit layer. But, <laughs> and this is really about wrestling. But to me, it, the, the use, the way he approaches it in terms of tone is one of the most powerful things to me. And it was, this was an incredible opener, one of uh, the most 
incredible openers we've had recently on an album, I think, sure. at least in terms of texture. I mean, we got a pretty behemoth of, a, of an intro, you know, last week with Godsticks, but at least that's still in the vein of what we expect from Godsticks. I, I didn't know what I was walking into here. Um, and there's, at least in terms of the emotional arc of this particular track, there is something that he does with the chord changes, kind of like rapidly moving you through chord changes, despite that it's a very slow-paced song. The piano doesn't just support everything. It's not just this, like, framework. Instead, it more guides the, the contemplative tone of this intro by constantly shifting in and along with the, with the melodic tendencies of the clarinets, which here are actually used as, a, they're actually serving a comping role. So it's a pretty complex structure for the very slow, you know, meandering, uh, uh, intro to this to this album it's still pop but it's it's more intricate and it's more introspective which is why those those mm -hmm. leaps that you just mentioned aren't aren't difficult for me to uh to, to believe yeah and when i saw him play the the tour that coincided with the release of this album on stage he mentioned that he's like this is an album about wrestling it's also an album about my experiences with becoming a new father um i don't know if his second son moses had been born at that point or not but he himself has been fairly open about the fact that now that he has a wife and he has two sons that he loves to tour, he loves to play music, he loves to do it, and he loves to be with his fans. But at the same time, he's very torn to leave his family behind. And I feel like... And as in, well, as a result of the familial edge there, I mean, he m makes the choice to bring in very warm instruments. I mean, what's mm -hmm. more warm than a clarinet? You know, you yeah. really can't use it in a metal capacity. It's just, it's just so tender. So as a result, I mean, there's just something about this track that had almost had me in a trance as we go through it. He does little things in terms of structure here. By the time we get around a uh, minute, 18 seconds in that range, we have something I would almost say is akin to a bridge, just led in by this quick run on the clarinets, probably like a, a more rivet, rigid quaver, you know, with the time signature that moves into a tuplet to really like, you know, make this quick run. And then finally, when we land at that moment, it's, it's this distinct chord change where the tone has shifted to something a little bit more open to something that's much more longing. And it matches with the lyrics, I try to remember what life was like long ago, but it's gone, you know. And at that moment, it sounds long as, at the same time yeah. as he said. I mean, that's, that's very, just reaching back into the past there. You know, obviously he's in the present. This is a very contemplative kind of song, but using that, it's, it's, it's just a really great artistic choice. And then it's followed by this more resigned resolution, because obviously how satisfied can you really be with the present if that's all you have to say? I tried to remember what life was like long ago, but it's gone, you know. Oh, it's like, that was a really brief aside, a brief trip down memory lane, and then all of a sudden you just, well, it's back, can't change the past. And I just thought that was a great, that was a great shift. Um, and the resolution is, of course, the chorus, which begins, climb the turnbuckle high, take two falls out of three, blackout for local TV, which is really where you get the, um, at least as far as I was concerned, the, the wrestling punch. Yeah. And that's where I kind of got it. And even then, I don't quite get it, but I get it. <laughs> right. And it's, it's interesting because you can read through this and read it as wrestling, but I also feel like taking it to a more autobiographical sense, the lines you have before that you have die on the road someday, and then later, uh, when it gets into verse two, you have stand in that cold, empty hall, wait for your name to get called. I feel like those are immediately something that any musician would relate to. Yeah. Die on the road someday, and that thing before you're called on stage where you're alone by yourself, and then suddenly you're out in front of everybody in that kind of dichotomy of life of so much isolation, but then so much having to be around so many people and being social. Yeah, almost every stage reference here, or every uh, life of the performer, I, I am inclined to sort of equate to the musician life, but it has that double meaning, which you have to be aware of as you go. Uh, there's just so much in this track, even though it's, it's, um, 
it's a fairly short track, but I guess it's longer than actually most of the tracks on this album, as far as an intro goes, uh, because he wants to really, like, uh, lay in a lot. In, in some ways, it almost uh, it almost sneaks up on you. You you realize that, like, the chorus isn't really, like, the, the, the chorus the first time. It just feels like a resolution, but you really feel it the second time, because then by that point, it's a lot more filled out. He brings in the drums. It starts to feel more impactful, you know, with those same words, climb the turnbuckle high, take two falls out of three. It's this very, very slow, gentle build, which is more in line with the, just a straight-up compositional structure than than pop song structure. I was absolutely adoring it every single step of the way. This track is like following stray neurons. It is that immersed in <laughs> contemplation. Yeah, it, it really does kind of set a strong stage for this album. And it, there's a theatricality to this track as well, which doesn't let up in the next track, though it's in a different way. When we go to The Legend of Chavo Guerrero, which when I saw the title and heard the chorus in the song, I went, aha, wrestling reference, because I know Chavo Guerrero Sr. and Jr. because I used to watch wrestling. And I was like, hey, a name. <laughs> exactly. But this song starts with a very kind of a pop rock riff, moving, very strummy guitar, and, it, you know, it kind of amps up the energy a bit after that nice intro. It becomes something uh, akin to, like, a, a tall tale. One of my favorites that we reviewed on the show, Rex Marksley, by Steam Power Giraffe, off of their Two Cent Show episode... Uh, 39. Thank you. <laughs> is is a very much um, a build-up. And this one is a little bit of a different slant. As it goes along, this is more of a build-up from the point of view of the fan idolizing the hero. Sure. So, once again, we're getting a lot of wrestling content with what's going on in the track itself. But when by the time you get to the chorus, look high, it's my last hope, Chavo Guerrero coming off the top rope. That, that line, it's my last hope, really does cement the sort of childlike awe yeah. this hero is instilling in his fan. Which is something that we've all kind of had growing up. Oh yeah, with something or another, you always get, latch onto a hero, fictional or or not fictional, and like these moments, like every step of the way, like in a, in a superhero movie, you know the good guy's gonna win. I mean, that's how those movies work. But I you also, still hang on every moment. I also noticed in that same chorus, he has a tendency to kind of like rush through those words. Yeah. Look high, it's my last hope. Chavo Guerrero coming off the top rope, and, and there's this there's like this inner meter, just the way he's singing here, that I really there's thought anticipation. was almost, almost anticipation, but also it, it's playful in its own way. But just to describe one thing about the the, the general nature of this track, it's, it should be mentioned this is much more upbeat, you know, and we've completely removed most of the you know the instrumentation that was present in the last track. We don't have the piano, we don't have the upright bass, really. Um, we don't even have the uh, the clarinets. We really just have this acoustic guitar, maybe two overlaid on top of each other, and then this sort of rapid drum work, which may even be accompanied by shakers, uh, kind of like you're just racing through this. You're feeling the hype. Well, it's it's really propagated by those power strums of the guitar, the very rapid-fire, heavy boom that they tend to go through in and out, and that's where that second guitar comes in. Yeah. But it's, it's also, there's a mid-chorus, uh, kind of like a, a pickup, as it goes along, it's very poppy in this mm -hmm. way. It's a very uh, indie folk pop combination. Not something we're really, you know, confused about or anything like that nowadays. But for that, it's losing some of its inventiveness that I got in the previous track. Well, I will say, I mean, I, you can almost take anything following the first track because it was just such a bold stretch. It's like, ah, right, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that a clarinet, piano, upright bass ensemble is going to be what defines this album. It's, it's so, you know, that could have, I accepted that could have just been like a, a more dramatic opener. And then, you know, this maybe is more up his alley. But I will say that from a mixing standpoint, 
um, because he kind of eased us in with this like gentle character in the first track here his, his, vocally he's just a little bit plainer uh, you don't have the same theatrical framing that you did in the first track so it was just a slight bit duller to me it felt like he should have been mixed a little bit higher with respect to the rest of the instruments which are racing themselves you know I and he was just a little bit too low I don't know if that maybe it would have been better if he just turned the knob a bit. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, regard mixing aside because it's hard to say what was you know how the mixing was done or whatever. Sure. You know, what I want to talk about lyrically and and vocally is just his flow and wordplay in this song. I think it's why I got wrapped up in this song. Well, John's right. I mean, it stays fairly even throughout this track. There aren't really any highs or lows. It just is this kind of rock track. What I really like is that it's a storytelling track and you kind of get wrapped up in the legend of Chavo Guerrero. John was very right in the beginning. It re resembles a fictional story about this hero, but it's actually an actual wrestler, which is still sort of fictional. Um, but through this, it does a great job of personifying why we love our heroes. That last phrase that he has, he was my hero back when I was a kid, you let me down but Shavo never did. You called him names to try to get beneath my skin, now your ashes are scattered on the wind. So he's actually directly comparing this larger than life figure he had to, I'm um, insinuating his father? Probably. That, that's I think most of, the way, most of the ways the fans read it, yeah. Um, because even earlier on, there were slight references uh, to Dad fought many bloody battles and raised four sons. Shavo was the oldest one. I mean, there's already a father figure being injected into this story. So that's talking about actually Chavo as a father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it is It's it's it is kind of John Darnielle saying that Chavo was almost like a father for him. Got like, it. Sitting at home watching these late night shows. And he talks about it like that they were in Spanish, right? Yeah. But, like, he doesn't even understand it, but he sees more of a father figure in him than he did in his own father. Uh, well, of course, there is that tendency because, it, you know, it can strike you as metaphorical that, that he's just kind of easing us back in from one theme into the next. And he does that almost from line to line, or at least that's why I, I think I found myself more more in, in, invested in, in the music a lot of the time, perhaps than the lyrics, because it was just like I, I, I may be losing what the point is. Um, but you know that that just goes with not being a wrestling fan. I believe that this is a, an amazing album, probably for anyone who uh, is into wrestling, because then they they're just following this along like they've relived this already. They perhaps have had this exact same uh, experience. Um... I love this track. I love this track a lot. <laughs> um, I love this track purely because to me this feels very old school Mountain Goats in the sense that there's not clarinets, there's not this upright bass, there's not all this extra instrument instrumentation, there's not a piano. It's a guitar, there's some drums going on, and it's a story. And the Mountain Goats are known for their stories. They create these characters, often a whole song is one entire character's story. This one is based on a real person, but for me this brings up um, like songs from All Hail West Texas, where you have uh, the best ever death metal band in Denton. You have Fall of the Star High School Running Back, both ones which are just a story within itself that has a beginning, a middle, an end, and you listen to it because you want to hear him tell the story. So I love this track a lot. Well, I do respect that this track is trying to like sort of pull you out of the contemplation and lift you up and bring you in his world even further. Um, I suppose my only issue was that there was something merely sweet about this track, and I emphasize the word merely, but it was still very enjoyable in its sort of sweet, uplifting sense. It, it I liked the racing with the shakers in the background. It was, it was a nice pickup, I think, for the album, which he also could have gone anywhere with. And there was an even nicer pickup in the bridge itself. It became like a, a drum Yeah, kick. it was around minute 22 seconds, I think. It, was, it, it really did get you going, and it was paired with some 
I want to say almost out of character, unless you're looking at it from the point of view the story is trying to present. Red Shoe Duggan, holding his arm high all out of breath. I hated all of Shavo's enemies. I would pray nightly for their death. And that's something that adult is messed up. But childlike, that's what you do when your hero is going up against the villains. It's, you you, you are, get so invested that you always go to the extremes. I love them. I hate them. You never think they're okay. I think that's what gives the song a real innocence, which is where the character is really strong. Is Lines like that give you this kind of childhood innocence of, yeah, yeah, go. Uh, maybe I just didn't have any heroes growing up. That's probably that's it. it. But I think a great cold. I, I think a great thing then to go with that is that yes, he saw this man as a hero, and this is actually the music video off this album has Chavo in it. I guess the story I'm trying to remember when John Daniel was telling it at the show is that like Chavo somehow through Twitter, I think, found out about the song and listened to it and loved him and they contacted each other and they have him in the music video and John O'Neill was so happy to get to meet him and it's like Chavo and then Chavo Jr. came and it's I think it's just great that it's this is a song that's saying like you were such an amazing person and then they got to meet. Yeah, it's 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 cool when like personal stories come together like that, especially for something as as awesome as a music video is like to bring those moments together and then share it with, with all of your fans is kind of neat. From here we go to track three, which is called Foreign Object, which I picture chairs flying, because I know that's common in wrestling rings, people throwing chairs into the ring. And that's uh, a foreign object. And it's a foreign object, because gotcha. it's not supposed to be in the ring. Gotcha. Uh, at this well, point, depends. it kind of is. Um, this song starts with one of my favorite kind of just tones that a song started with. It had this very deep, saxophones. almost du- All yeah, saxophones, saxophones and, and then deep bass that comes in right after that adds this kind of reverberation to the whole track. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it was like a, a, a synthesizer more toward the left ear or maybe that was just like another kind of uh, differently mixed woodwind or something. But you definitely get the saxophone edge in the right ear. It might be two of them, uh, sort of tenor saxophones. It has this very, it is a very deep register. And I'm already kind of liking the theme of, even if it's not always clarinets, at least the woodwind family. <laughs> he has a propensity for woodwinds. I like that. Um, also, I really dug the rhythm here, even yeah. much like the, the last track. Well, this one, it's got kind of a, uh, this is probably totally off the mark, but it's almost like a samba-esque feel. It's like one. And, 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 and I like that, like, offbeat thing. But it's heavy. It's not just, it's not very light. and It doesn't come off as, as, as a samba because of how kind of deep the percussion is and the way the sax of is course, treating it. Of course, and the instrumentation has nothing to do with it. It's just yeah, that, that, it's a that, weird combination and, of and, a sound and a style really coming together to do something that's a little bit different than what I'd come to expect from either of the two. Yeah. When you take that, it's, it's really just, just sexy here in the sax paralleling the bass as it goes along as well there you said they were like nearly in register i believe they're i believe they're double but i I, and again that's probably a a synth bass i'm not entirely certain or it could be the upright and i'm just uh uh, misremembering it but they 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 work in tandem and that's what kind of creates this very strange effect because you don't often hear that that synth matched up with the saxophone it almost makes it sound as as if the whole thing were some kind of synth and it's uh, it reverberates in your brain as you're listening exactly what I like about this track also as we progress through the album is the first time that I kind of made a connection to a band that I think I'm almost positive is contemporaries with Mount Goats, which is They Might Be Giants, just in song style and structure, because this song, because of the lyrics and the structure of it, get to feel almost a little goofy because it's just it's just so outlandish and it 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 it's the first time listening to the album I actually laughed out loud. Like and I know it's not supposed to be a comedy album, but it's just the dichotomy of the message and the lyrics and how they're presented so matter of factly kind of makes you giggle. 
I was about to make the same point, actually, um, considering that it's, it's not like Goofy, and I'm, I'm saying theme aside yet, yeah. because I didn't initially know what was going on. So I'm just like, you know, from a from a, a music perspective, you, you enter the first track, and he's just throwing you down this, this dark alley, and then all of a sudden you get these two very, very lively, sweet tracks to follow. And I suppose my only issue with that in the at this point was that you go almost from like the compositional beauty of Arc Iris into the sort of gets the job done, fill out the comedy role of Weird Al. Well, it, it, it's still half and half. When you look at the second verse, March through the red mist, never get my vision clear, learn to love this kind of atmosphere. Strike funny poses, keep my weapon hand low, whip my head around a little, get blood on the front row. It is pers- perfectly personifying the back and forth, the serious and the playful in that single verse. The first, very March through the red mist. Come on, I mean, you're like, he's a metal fan. There's some death metal right there. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me is that I feel like this is the least Mountain Goat song on the album. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because when we were discussing this and you guys were comparing them to They Might Be Giants, I was just like, but all of these, like, the Mountain Goats are known for having these really deep, dark, harrowing, depressive songs, and I couldn't get over the comparison to They Might Be Giants. And, and as you talk about it with the song, yeah, it, it I mean, you know, it's... Like could be Particle Man, like, right? right? Like, well, which Frosty. is about a wrestler, exactly. Yeah. Seeing so, that little whine in his voice when he sings out "Far in RJ," it's like there's that twang and, and that's it, almost yeah, in, and it's the the, the bop badadas at the end. Like to me, this is it seems really strange. It feels really happy. It feels really upbeat, and it doesn't feel like a Mountain Goat song to me. But it's, it's delightful okay, so to that see. Tells me a little about their it's past. It's delightful to see them play it live, though. So I can expect more of the depressing nature of the first track, or oh. at least contemplative nature of the first yes, track. Yes, definitely. Oh, okay, okay, good. <laughs> that's good. Second chorus, where it changes, I'm gonna jab you in the eye with a foreign object, to I personally will stab you in the eye with a foreign object. And it's so matter-of-factful that it, it's it's so deadpan. It really does a lot to showcase where, in, in, in this, continuing the theme, he's talking about the pageantry of wrestling in this, but it's also starting to blur the lines between... Yes, it's soap opera with sweaty men beating each other up, but there's also some real, like, guys don't get along in this. I mean, there's still some legitimate rivalries. There's still legitimate emotion in this. Yeah, you're slated to fall. You're supposed to lose the title bout here. But the guy doesn't have to, you know, put you in a suplex and actually make you pass out or something like that. He does not have to be a jerk about it, and that can spawn legitimate problems. So it's it's a back and forth between the two and I like it. It's it's an interesting little way to go with this theme to really start cementing it from kind of childish, kind of, especially in that last track when it's sort of the point of view of a child, into a more concrete, more mature uh, theme. Uh-huh. Is it too simplistic to say that this is just like a playful homage to the theatricalities of wrestling? Oh, it absolutely Completely. is on point yeah. to say that, okay. yeah. Okay. I mean, because also what John's saying is reminiscent of actual feuds that have been born out of wrestling. Now, gotcha. our wrestlers who didn't get along, like one of the more famous ones is Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. Like, <laughs> they actually had animosity for each other because got, someone got screwed over and this kind of a thing. And so that kind of drama is definitely present here and present in other tracks later, too. Just, it's very visceral at some point, but you can't, if you can't beat them, make them bleed like pigs, you know, <laughs> yeah. over the playful air, because it's all, you know, it's all in good fun but, anyway. But, foreign object. I mean, it's, it's, it's... That is a theatricality in words at that point. The seriousness is not being taken too seriously. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Um, from here we go on to track four, which is Animal Mask, which, as we know, um, Chavo Guerrero and a lot of Spanish wrestlers and Mexican wrestlers and pretty much anyone within that luchador range always wrestle with a mask. And, you know, masks are very important to the imagery and the symbolism of that wrestler and their story and their background. And so seeing something called Animal Mask is not... A surprise to me because they're talking about that symbol and what i like about how it starts is it's got that kind of count off coffee house rock one two not coffee three. house rock coffee house artist who's there just 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 playing an instrument because that's what he has if anything the tone was less rock and more of like a pop country feel there True. was lots of like those wails in the background that feel like the kind of like screeches that a violin would make or that a guitar would make if they're patched right you know just it, it really is mood setting if, if it is for like a coffee shop atmosphere it feels a lot more open though almost like landscapey yeah it, it definitely this song definitely takes a western kind of folk feel which from what Anya tells us, is very foreign to <laughs> to the mountain goats and their sound. But it had a kind of saunter that you would expect a wandering storyteller to have. And I, I like that. You know, I like storytelling songs. So when it takes that kind of a structure, I'm like, oh, this is interesting, you know. And I've gotten more open to storytelling kind of country songs because they have a, a certain charm to them. Well, the root of it, that whole acoustic uh, pedal steel thing, like that's that, that to me, I could almost take or leave. That's like, all right, you could do a lot with that. It's the additives that really make it for me. It's the adding of that sort of bendy wine as I call it in the violin and uh, there's even like a Mellotron that pops up later there's more woodwinds later on it's it's actually it creeps up on you this track it starts off a lot more simplistic than it actually becomes I really enjoy that just the, the structure it takes and this kind of uh, emotional uh, I guess nonchalance about kind of this it has this kind of ga ga gallop and easygoing nature which I really like since we didn't really get that at this point, except the first track, well, which was kind of mellow. <laughs> I don't know. I would still say that the tracks uh, two and three were, were sort of easygoing and sweet. And I think sure. this is still at least in the same in the same department. I'm still kind of waiting for that 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 thing to arrive that we had in track one. That's true, but it does yeah. still have a kind of different genre feel, which they've been jumping from track to track. But it's still uh, in the very pop realm. And that is, there's some pickups as you're going along that you can kind of predict in the verses. You can really tell where the course is going to go before it's before it happens. There's some of the inventiveness is like is lacking here for me. I'm I'm still waiting for a pan flute solo. I'm still waiting for that <laughs> aha moment where the clarinets come back or the sax does something like wicked or strings come in and do something crazy. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like this song is just a nice country song. And like I said, once again, it's, it feels kind of weird for a Mountain Goats album to have the country track. But I think it also works. Cause like I said, this is Mexican. This is Southern California. This it, it has this kind of like Texan country feel. And I feel it works for the content. Um, you know, it's an interesting that you have these lyrics that are uh, some things you will remember. Some things stay sweet forever. And at the end... That was when we were green and young, battle cry rising from your tongue. It's, you know, if we're going to take it from a more personal one, this is one about, you know, what it was like at some point when we were doing these things, similar things, some things you won't remember. Um, so you think it's sweet in the vein of nostalgia? So. Yeah, this is yeah. kind of like a such where earlier we had the one where it's, you know, I was thinking about the past, but it's gone. You know, this is like, oh, well, we can still have some sweet memories. And I think that that melds very well with the country feel. Well, there is a sway to this. And this is, there is something I, I, I should say, even about this track and, and the previous two, that he's very good at just picking a nice, like, rhythmic block 
and sort of making that the dominant force for the duration of the track. Um, probably, it, it, it's, it's the most creative i think at least on instinct to just come up with it because a lot of times people get stuck in 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 rhythmic uh grooves that start to like dominate their entire album and you can't really distinguish he can come up with them and then they have the the, the force itself to just sort of dominate the entire track in this case this sort of like sway this like one two entry eh, lit one two entry eh, and you, you feel like you're swaying with friends and reminiscing about the good old days i really like that just as a tool because he's been able to do that consistently for the last uh for the last three tracks in a row and one little thing that I don't believe was mentioned was the, when the bass. The bass really took a forefront for me because I guess I was listening with a little bit too much bass and a little bit too little treble. It was right there in my ears when I was listening on headphones. And it was it was even stronger than any percussion line. It was doing an incredible job of keeping the story moving. While I wasn't totally engaged by the music, that line, that instrument, did a lot to keep this still enjoyable from uh, just a purely analytical uh, point of view. Well, and it's clear at this point he is a good storyteller. Like, there, that is no secret. At, at track four, we know he can tell a story. And so, and I like the way he does it. So I think that's what's kept me invested more than anything else. Um, I think I'd enjoy him in a, in a coffee shop atmosphere, that's for sure. I think so, I'd too. I'd be yeah. eased. Yes. Um, from here we go to track five. Yes, not speaking of eased. Yes. <laughs> so, a lot heavier by Contra. This is much more in the rock punk vein, frankly. Um, it's called Choked Out, and this one is a whopping 1 minute and 43 seconds to all told, and it moves at a quick pace. Yeah. For the sake of comparison, I, just in terms of like what we've uh, reviewed, going back to episode 81, this would be uh, Against Me's Transgender Dysphoria Blues. Well, Against Me in general, frankly, and of course the singer is Laura Jane Grace. This feels like... I'm not going to say an emulation because you never want to say emulation when it comes to artists. They sing in their own way, but this it would just it resonated with so much like yeah. that vocalist. It just it does something re- in the punk intensity and in the accents. Everything is very very punchy, but yet there's still a little sweetness in it and a little wine, very high register. All these th- these are the similarities that I at least found to that particular vocalist. I mean, I would agree. I, I hear her in this a little bit for sure. Um, I, I'd like how it was kind of just guitar, drum, and bass focused, just very raw. It, it was definitely uh, uh, interesting to go to after the previous tracks we've had. It was unlike anything we'd heard at this point. To have this early alt-indie rock combo or the punk, late punk infusion going on right here, it was, the the song itself was actually about a wrestling match. I mean, maybe the tail end of it, considering he's talking about getting choked out. $200 take-all purse, half Nelson to suplex reverse. Worried look on the face of the ringside nurse at one for once with the universe. Choked out, choked out, choked out, choked out. I mean, he's... Using in this case the, the the stylistic choices to really present uh, a very frantic, very heavy, almost visceral nature. Just well, choked just that out. Way. Choked out feels like it could be a title to any punk song going back to the late seventies. I mean, but just in terms is, of like that one little visual that they give you. It's it's not referential in this case. It's literal. That well, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, so I I like the idea of for an object being kind of like a samba and then you have animal masks kind of like the country and i love this one as a punk song i this is one where i like oh i don't really remember the mountain goats as a punk band but i like them as a punk band and this is one where i always love uh john daniel's lyrics so much 
and this one has a lot of repetition in it and you you see a lot of repetition on the album more than i think you do on other albums i gotta comment on that in a second (laughs) (laughs) um but it's like choked out like makes sense for the punk one but i do love that going around that you do have these really intense uh verses like uh, so this is, you know, about the fact that someone's going to have to pass out. Like, they're going to choke somebody until they pass out. It's, you know, it's going to be rough. So it's, I stretch and strain with all my might, drift off into the velvety arms of the night, kick and claw and scratch and bite, fire up the grill, everybody eats tonight, choked out. I think that's amazing. I think those are great, great lyrics for, for a punk song or for the, for the song. That's what I'm saying. I, I could picture, like, any, I don't know, Liverpoolian punk singer just shouting out, choked out, you know, and then everyone just starts mashing or whatever. Moshing. <laughs> yeah, it's usually but, um, called moshing. Unless you're using potatoes, then it's mashing. Then it's it's mashing. Well, maybe you're mashing while you're mashing. I don't know. What I like also about the fact that this is a punk song is it uh, really shows the side of the type of wrestling he's referring to, that kind of small venue, independent. Like, the fact that the track is so raw reflects the rawness of that kind of wrestling. And actually, that made me sort of reconsider the thing about the mixing, is that even though that's been a little critique and that I don't feel like his his vocals are mixed as high as they could have been, this is a case where, frankly, if you look at the majority of punk that was even created around the late 70s and early 80s, they were always mixed low, and they were always mixed crappy in general. So I feel like maybe that's a little bit of a a reference on his part. stylistic choice to... To lower the mixing to give that heavy punk feel. Yeah, and then uh, back to that comment on the repetition. And that's something that, uh, yes, of course, this is another case where you have the groove and then you persist with the groove for the rest of the track. But I, I, I stress that even though I may not be sold on the expansion of these particular tracks because you don't really get that new section it just seems to be the consistent groove i really really am am finding that these they're expertly chosen and this keeping with my tradition of breaking down each and every rhythm (laughs) here we have this accent specifically on like the the end of the two and the end of the four and two and four and two and four and that really matches up well with the vocalist himself which, because he's doing the accents around the same portion and you almost get this again this like semblance of like rhythmic counterpoint that i absolutely adore it also goes having this heavy speed makes the song very very short and i'll explain it's like because he's going through such a quick rhythm with such quick lyrical work that it, the song does not need to be three minutes four minutes mm-hmm. long it can be under two no that's another thing I and it was full great credit for, for being concise and having it that short was great and i think if you want to get really deep about it i think it's really we do. <laughs> i think it's really funny that the song comes in at a minute 42 it's a minute shorter than the next shortest song on the album uh and then it's a song about running out of breath yeah yeah <laughs> and it's a song where he sings really fast and it's really really short almost as if you were being choked and yeah. he does lose in the end yeah there's rainbows he passes out he floats away he sees the future it's not good mm-hmm. yeah um it's there's imagery is strong with this album that is for sure <laughs> from here we go to track six Heel Turn 2. I love this album. This track. We, <laughs> I love we, this track. I, I think it's safe to say we all love this track. Yeah, the, so we get something that's just different again, but not, but not so far into what we've heard. Well, let's hold off on the obvious, because yes. obviously there's an obvious turn later into this track, which I, I will, I'll get to. So we start, start off much more acoustic. It's it's slower. Uh, it's kind of almost like got that pure acoustic feel, just like we got that pure uh, piano feel, like in the very beginning. So it's a lot more removed. I did find that his singing still kind of uh, rings of Laura Jane Grace, but instead it's a little, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's on the lighter side of, of, of what she would otherwise do. The mixing, the lyrics, and the almost scream-oriented level that he's doing. Very high pitch for what we've gotten previously. It's, it's like he's really trying here 
to hit a high note, but he's not overbearing on it. He's not really pushing it forward where it's drowning out the music or it's not hurting your ears or anything like that. This one was just awesome. This is my favorite vocals of the album. Well, the vocal structure has a sense of urgency to it, which I think is in how he sang it as well. That kind of is different from what we had been getting on previous tracks a bit. I may have just uh, mentioned rhythmic counterpoint in the previous track. It's not even close to what occurs here, especially after like about a minute in when we're beyond just the, the, the guitar and the vocals. Now all of a sudden we get a, a return of that upright bass. And it comes in with the vocal pickup to the next verse. This, the bass just joins in with its own accents that start reflecting the vocals, but not perfectly. It's offset from the vocals. And that's just, I, I, I love rhythmic counterpoint. You don't really get it that much. Most people think of counterpoint in terms of harmonies. This proves you can do the other thing. Um, and it's just, with that new uh, foundation, other things start popping up. You have this really, uh, this like wet reverb sensation that just drenches the whole early part of, of this track and it will continue even to the later part of this track uh, mostly over the guitar uh, where the guitar is really used in more of a post-rock sense just to kind of like color things out with just a, a singular chord that might last and, and ring out for almost two measures on end it's absolutely I, I, I adore it I, again I'm all about the additives maybe not to say much of like the, the primary melody it's all about the way he shapes this that I'm so impressed with and the piano touches that he throws throughout yeah, those the, flourishes the track are itself. really powerful it's, it's light it, he doesn't bother trying to really integrate it into the solid part of the, the first half of the track it's just like a preview because what this track turns into is just a piano uh, a man at the piano, a piano it, ditty. It becomes a piano solo, but it's not even that simple because you don't really realize it's going to happen that quickly. I, I can't even tell you how astonished I was at the at the uh, the way he pastes this this the way he paced this kind of shift here around the the halfway point of this track. This piano begins almost weak, and everything else starts just like like withering away and and the piano is it's weak it's heartbroken it, it's almost as if he'd been bottling something up ever since track one and now he just lets out all the tears and the piano mostly is at this point is hovering around like the mid to high end uh at least for a while and then almost all the instruments start pulling back completely uh just just leaving the piano alone and at some point i thought it was even not going to be a piano solo, but a bass solo, because the bass steps in a little bit louder and the piano starts disappearing. But then the piano comes back, the bass is finally gone, and now, now at this point, it is a pure piano solo. And I just love the way he kind of teases you back and forth with that, not to say that there's going to be like these, these signature dividing uh, sections. And when that piano comes back, it is so open. It's full of fifths and fourths, you know, that, that very open technique, wide intervals, uh, like Aaron Copland used to do for, like, painting landscapes. But here, I can't even say he's painting a, a, a landscape. It feels more of just like this, this deeply personal, like, like I don't know, the soundtrack to your life kind of thing, even though it's cliche to say. Well, that's because of the content of the lyrics and the story he's telling here. The first half is... The hero, I guess we're switching back and forth from point of view. We've been going from the fan to the wrestler back and forth a few times now. Here's the wrestler. And this is how he ends the vocal part. Let all the trash rain down from way up in the rafters. I'm walking out of here in one piece. Don't care what comes after. Drive the wedge, torch the bridge. I don't want to die here. I don't want to die here. And there's an extra and that's, emphasis. And that's the note he leaves you on before he goes off. There's an emphasis on, on that chorus, I don't want to die here, that's missing even from the verses. Rather, I should say that's the thematic note he yeah. leaves you on before he goes off on this musical exposition. So we go from, from him trying to leave to a... a I, I kind of equate it to the, the sad Hulk music, but... <laughs> 
it's really appropriate. It's the it's the leaving the life behind music. Uh-huh. Um, so this song is really really interesting. If you are a Mountain Goats fan who sees them live or, uh, live a lot, because there's things that and whenever I listen to a new Mountain Goats album, I'm always really excited to be like, ah, oh, this is I'm so excited to see them play this one live because I know the things that John is going to do. Uh, a lot of times the songs in the album, the vocal tracks are a little bit more restrained and held back because you know when you see him live, he's going to be yelling and screaming them. So there's an excitement behind that. Another thing is that he tends to change the lyrics throughout time uh, and add a lot of extra flourishes. So for example, uh, the one verse he says, stay good under pressure for years and years and years. It's one of those ones where when I first heard that, I go, oh, man, when he plays it, when he plays it live, it's going to go for years and years and years and years and years. And he's going to embellish it. Uh, but the really exciting part is when the piano comes in. So we were talking about how this song is about a person who is playing a villain and they're concerned about how it's affecting them on like an existential level and that they are concerned about how their child is going to see them going back to the idea of new fatherhood. Uh, and he's, you know, nope, he's going to heel turn, go back, leave. At which point the music changes. And being a fan of the band and seeing them live, you know when John goes into a big piano solo, it means that the rest of the band is going to be leaving the stage. And oh. it will end with him just playing by himself. And it's a really beautiful moment to just see him get to sit in front of piano and play and take the pauses and the musicality of it. And I think it pairs so well with the song, which is about leaving all of that behind and just going off on your own. So it's, I think it's a beautiful song and it's, it's beautiful to see it played live. And it's a great follow-up also to such like a rousing track that we had previously. This kind of just like settles you down. It's, it's, a nice, it's a nice little stage trick. What I like about the structure also as a wrestling fan is like when your favorite uh, wrestler turns heel or if you really like a wrestler who's a heel, you go through these like emotional roller coasters with them when you're invested in the character. And I think it's really interesting the structure that this song takes, like John said earlier, it has that kind of end of Hulk TV show walking away feel. You know, you get that kind of emotional pull when you're invested in these characters. Well, it's it's also the person play acting, realizing the, the too much of spillover he's, that's going on between the role and the individual. Right. And that's where it's just, it can apply to so many different parts uh, of so many aspects of society. When you're stuck playing... Even if it's a hero, when you're stuck playing a simple character or a complex character or something that you are not, when does the mask become too much of who you are? When can you? When do you have to walk away? And this is that breaking point, that point where he has to walk away. And that is, I'm so glad you said that, uh, because when I heard this song, I immediately connected it to uh, Ezekiel 7 from Life of the World to Come, uh, their 09 release, because that is a song that is about a hired killer who has just tortured a person and is driving out to the desert to kill them. And it ends with this really long like piano part and just a drum beat, much like how this one ends with just a really long piano part. And they're both songs about a person who is put, playing a role and is having to do this life and is concerned about how it's taking a toll on their soul in the long run. Uh, I think they're a great pairing. If if you love Heel Turn 2, you'll love Ezekiel 7. Which is why a lot of this, you know, it goes from being almost like an a removed homage into being something incredibly personal, and you get that shift here as well, uh, which is why I don't think it's really at all the mark to say, you know, what I said before, the whole uh, soundtrack to your life thing. I think yeah. there's something very cinematic to this track, and it's the first time to me on this album, uh, well, that the album took on that, that new role 
cool as as a, a cinematic feature. I mean, especially in regard to to this piano solo, it's almost like that that bated breath moment that you get in like a a really depressing indie flick where you ever everyone's sad and there's no happy outcome and your main character is just utterly utterly depressed. The kind of film where if 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 it doesn't make you existentially depressed, then the film has probably failed. And I hear that all in in this just in this piano solo alone. And from a piano player's perspective, I have some other little key things to note about the solo, what he does that, that, that pretty much blows my mind. Because deeper into this whole over, open interval section, which, which feels about as, as removed and as, as contemplative as they come, then all of a sudden you get like, some real chance of experimentation. There's a point in which the sustain pedal is completely removed, or, or rather the whole reverb layer is completely removed, and these little sforzandos, these very harsh, uh, grounded, warm uh, piano accents step in. And their accent over this following this very, very, you know, airy segment where almost everything is just played with this delicate touch. And now here it's just completely warm, much louder. It feels almost as if they changed the mixing coinciding with his piano ability to really like let these few notes leap out. And it, it, it's almost like you're you're shifting things in and out of focus between the hazy and the uh, and the, 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 the white noise that you can't distinguish and the things that are a little bit more grounded. In fact, it should be jarring, but they seem to be in the sort of area of the piano that keeps them, that almost re- reinvigorates the solo itself. It's, it's sort of like a little skip in, in the Hulk's step as he's walking away. Well, it's all mid-range. It's not like down in the, in the, in the muddy re- register. This is, this is very, it, it, very crisp. It, it actually breathed a little bit of life back into the solo, so we weren't going to get just a depressing outro as we're going along. It's like out of all this, you get this this twang of of both I think happiness and a twang of sadness at the same time because you're just you're just caught up in it all and you, and you never know what exa- what's really going to come of it and frankly you're lucky you even have a chance to experience it. Yeah, it it's definitely emotionally as far as emotional tracks go, this is in top tier for for what I've heard over the year at least. It's just it makes you feel what you feel <laughs> is dependent on like that 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 frame of reference of this life of a personal story like that would be the word evocative yes <laughs> yeah exactly actually <laughs> and it's phenomenal that it actually is the story of a wrestler it's it's a little bit different that way because this is not someone that society would normally expect to have like these deep emotional feelings because they're supposedly a mound of muscle on stage or something like that it's reminiscent of the indie movie the wrestler Yes, exactly. Like it, it has that kind of emotional scope, and this track really hammers the harder, more depressing parts of that home. And having it from uh, talking about someone who's just not the normal reluctant hero or reluctant villain, whatever it may be, be it such a, a center of emotional turmoil is even more endearing for me. It, last little uh, musical geek note <laughs> um, is that following this whole segment, which it's you know most of this is in major, frankly, or even if it's not in major, it's in the open fifths and fourths, which frankly give you a very a very warm feel, or at least mm-hmm. that since that that slow major feel where you feel like you're supposed to be happy but you're not quite. And then finally at the tail end, like second to last note, there's just this this little twang of dissonance. I don't know if it was a a diminished chord or it was just a little non chord tone just smashed in there, just to leave you on this really in this really ugly state just before we finally close out the track. And, I don't know, this musical impressions, 101. <laughs> and that tiny little ugly state, we get Fire Editorial, the next track, track on the album. Track seven, yeah. And from the moment the piano starts, um, 
I think it was Anya said it had a very Charlie Brown-esque kind of Peanuts feel. <laughs> Which is weird because I said noir and now I have to link noir to Charlie Brown music and that's going to bother me. I mean, realistically... Let's say, let's say the composer, Vince Guaraldi. Yeah, I mean, realistically, it was a very piano rock feel and we've, of course, thrown around the name Ben Folds who has, of course, made a career out of piano rock. It, it definitely has that kind of vibe. It was, you know, it, it had energy and it had a groove to it that kind of felt... Uh, well, for, for for one, very different from the soft piano outro we well, just it is, got. Well, it is more apt to, I think, compare it to the Charlie Brown theme because it's a lot, it's 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 a lot jazzier. It's a little mm-hmm. bit more upbeat, and also, uh, I would even compare it to another uh, uh, pianist, um, Jamie Cullum, sort of, sure. a, you know, light lighthearted jazz. But I, I notice he has this sort of like delicate touch, but he has a lot of like staccatos, playful staccatos. That's kind of what I found in here. Uh, and then along with that, you also have the, the the bass reacting with it the rhythm is just absolutely wonderful yeah the bass keeps it from seeming too freeform ish too all over it, yeah. it it adds a little bit of chaos but it keeps it well grounded and considering this almost reads like a tagline of of news stories or something like that to be all sensual and stimulating and really making you watch that seven o'clock news <laughs> Down Indiana Way, make them check their guns. Real tears when it's over. Smell the sulfur when the dark vault splits. That's not only solid, really solid poetry. That's very, very dark for, yeah. especially for what this album has been doing. Yes, we've been flirting with adult themes and adult themes that you really don't get too often. But here, this is smell the sulfur. Obviously, someone's firing a gun, ending in tears. That that's just bad stuff and they all read off like uh sort of the the big sensual like oh there's been a murder or something like that but as we go along the line at the end of the chorus save yourselves save this town save everything not nailed down he has sort of a a, an unusual lilt to it that kind of is a little bit cheeky and that's when i realized he's kind of talking about sports riots it's it's an odd thing that happens, especially when you get into War in Ontario, dead before the bell. That was one of the big things that has happened uh, quite a few times in hockey, is uh, your team loses, you're out of the Stanley Cup, boom, riot, destroy the streets, everything like that. It's a weird thing to be tr- presenting right here, but it also shows sort of the after- aftermath of heel turn two, when the hero left, like what sort of thing would have happened. It, it does come off very newsy, like news story headline feel. And I think it, it is to kind of hammer that impact. Like it's it's hammering home this message. It is a lot more adult and in your face and just kind of hear some stories. You know, that, that uh, kind of adds some perspective to the tail end of this track. Because while it's pretty jazzy and fairly, you know, fairly uplifting for the majority, then there's this point at the end where it all of a sudden grows very minimalist. And yeah. it recedes back and there's just like this one chord every measure or two measures and everything just drags out just like thump, thump. And it's almost like, you know, the, the calm after the storm, yeah. so to speak. Well, it's ending with who will stand before the flood, who will mop up all the blood, who alone. There we are. <laughs> Skin, bone, steel, stone, swim or drown, save this town, save everything not nailed down. It, it, that's that's a sort of a call to arms, but nobody's answering. So that's another area, knowing nothing about sports riots, completely you know went over my head uh, on the initial listen. But I really I did like the the outro. I think it also has a, a kind of 
perspective of if the hero's still talking to his audience that's listening, he's trying to almost warn them to to grab what you can, save what you can. Or in, in another way, poking fun at it or talking about what's wrong with being so invested. Right. It, it can be, it's a double-edged sword going on here, and you're getting both messages sort of coming across at the same time. I think time. it's take it seriously, but don't take it that seriously. I just, kind of I just kind of interpret it as a narrative, just a straight-out description of, well, this is what happens, whether there's any particular take on it, I don't know. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, it's interesting with this one. This is not one of my favorite ones off the album. The the Charlie Brownness of it takes me <laughs> out of it because I'm I I wish this was one of the more deeper kind of more sinister Mountain Goat song like uh like Craters in the Moon uh from Heretic Pride cuz like you were saying those lyrics, you know, who will mop up all the blood, who alone skin, bone, steel, stone, swim or drown, save this town. Like that could be so absolutely sinister. But for me, there's like, this, like Charlie Brown music in the background. <laughs> um, so I, I like it for its lyrics and I think its lyrics are absolutely beautiful. For me, the the kind of rhythm isn't my favorite. I, I appreciate that take on it, at least considering that, you know, there are a lot of more lighthearted tracks on this, on this album that I could kind of take or leave. It's clear. I think this is true with most music, frankly. Whenever you get serious, whenever you get a little bit dark, that's 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 when people are affected more. Um, but then again, it did have the outro, <laughs> as I just said. The outro itself is, is kind of a sinister note on a fairly uh, uplifting song, even if you didn't know anything about the theme. It could also be that argument of it's a news story. It's not a personal point of view. It's that guy in the studio trying to feed you a line so that you'll boost ratings or something like that, which shows how ridiculous both the reaction to these acts are as well as the acts themselves. It's, it's, it's that double-edged again. It's, it's really pointed. And while this is dark in message but not necessarily in tone, we get the next track for both. <laughs> yeah. So track eight, which may be in the running for longest title of the year, is Stabbed to Death Outside San Juan. That is not the longest title of the year. I'm yeah, just, but I'm there's just a saying. lot of letters We did on do Sufjan Stevens this year, didn't we? <laughs> yes, we did. So I'm, I'm okay, sure. So there you go. But so this track starts in a very ominous place, which we hadn't really gotten that dark of an ominous feel, at least musically. So I was instantly hooked by just, oh, here's a thing. And I liked where it went because it took you there pretty quickly with the chords. It's not just ominous. It's, it's the ominous side of a talking country song, which is, I mean, some people may not understand what that is, but it's, it's you're getting down to a very personal message or a very specific sort of like Aesop Fable kind of a take on it where this is information that has to be imparted upon you. It's almost in the vein of Southern Gothic. Uh, there you go. As, yeah, as a as a tool and mostly steel acoustic, but then there is that that spoken word. And this time, I really do mean it. It's not the plain speak that I described as of the first track, where he's just speaking a little bit more down to earth. But he's still singing. Make no mistake about that. Here, he really is speaking. This is that of of a a, a Jim Morrison um a track. Jim Morrison aside, because of course Jim Morrison would sing, and then a lot of times he would just speak his whole yeah. little you know bridges or we call them vocal solos. They're just his own little takes on humanity as if he were just a preacher and this is very much how the the, the beginning of this track uh starts off and then finally well this is all amidst a more like noir dark alley feel and the chorus is as, as i hear it is really just that one word twitch and he really just lets that ring out and the eerie is almost uncomfortable of of ways you know before a lot of 
more i'd say the more experimental side of this album starts uh, uh reaching out little drum interludes little transitions there's a very oddball transition that it comes later on at around a minute 30 seconds this transition where an upright bass steps in or might have even been a cello but it's this very deep like it's almost, like a drone almost it, it's a drone but there's a there's a theme there there's like a mo- motif that is actually built in the course of just this maybe like five to ten seconds but it's very heavy it's very overbearing and then all of a sudden ooh, we're right back to the verse. And that's where the guitar sort of like gives way to that upright bass cello. Uh, yeah. We're not quite sure. We're not, well, frankly, even along with that, there's like this tinniness to it yeah. where it even sounds as if it were doubled by like a harpsichord or something. And I know it's clearly not. It's just like, it's an oddball effect mix, mixing the tinny with the, the rumbly. These instruments give a kind of discord to the track that I was really on board for. It kind of, this is the follow-up to the previous lyrics that kind of hammer home that dark message. This is a specific story, and it really gets ominous and apprehensive when verse 3 shows up and we get the drums really starting to kick it up that final notch it really needed yep. to hit the darkness level it seemed to be going for here. Well, but even this is amidst more things. It's not just the drums. In fact, that wasn't something that stood out to me. What stood out to me was the violin stepping in there, or it was violins, violas, whatever. It would more high registered strings instruments which step in with these squeals. But actually, there's two things they do. Just to show how all over the place this particular track is, um, uh, texturally speaking, is that it steps in at one point with a more cinematic, like, uh, uh, tremolo just in the background that just creeps up to a bill, and it's very... Ah, oh, it's such a wonderful resolution, or feels like the you know the the love story climax for a brief few seconds. Then all of a sudden that recedes, and later on that's supplanted by this horror squeal, which just like uh, slides down this little glissando slide. Absolutely adore it. But it's the kind of thing that comes out of like an avant-garde piece that you hear on the radio at three in the morning. That's what I loved about this piece. Or there were <laughs> there were the background symbols that were ever so slightly rumbling lightning, just just a little bit here and there. Just to add a, a tiny little bit of texture to emphasize points as the verse is going along. Uh, one of the things, this is one of my favorite tracks off the album, and one of the things that I really like about it is I feel like it's a little bit more emotional, and you can hear it in his voice. Uh, you start to get the wavery voice of him. He starts to get a little bit more um, in his nasally range, which you hear in a lot of the earlier albums. Um and it just feels a little bit less produced, even though there is all this instrumentation. And when those uh, violins or whenever the strings kick in and they're, they are, they're spooky, they're horror, they're kind of scary. It's a lot like uh, Lovecraft in Brooklyn off Heretic Pride or I never know how to say this, Delia did um, off Sunset Tree. Like they make you uneasy. This song makes you uneasy. And I love that uh, the mountain goats can create these songs that just really creep you out, even though the lyrics are just a general story. All of the instrumentation just kind of gets under your skin. I mean, maybe it comes down to taste, but I personally think uh, he's at his best when he has a uh, full disposal of other instruments. You know, I, I maybe this will be an argument that'll come up in our, in our, in our wrap up, but I don't know, minimalism. And that is to say minimalism in terms of just like guy and his guitar that can wear on me. It's very hard, I think, to stand out in that particular environment. But he, when he decides to incorporate other instruments, he's very, very unique with it. He does it in a very bold, fresh way. I don't even really know how to classify it at times. Yeah, it's alt, maybe, I don't know. But uh, I enjoy a lot of that avant-garde piece. And I'm not talking all-out jazz avant-garde. It's just, it's like you said, it's, it's minimalist in terms of the fact that he doesn't use this all at once. It's not this this vast density of, of a, a, like a, a symphonietta or something, like a lot of other Indigo's classical uh, uh, artists have done. Instead, it's just he throws in what he needs to when he needs to 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 really drag out that that 
uncomfortable feel. He's rambling. He's just going along with the song itself. If he needs to start adding additional information, that's when he'll bring in a part for the string section. Well, rambling would, he would hint, though, that in... it was arbitrary. And no, I, don't no. believe, I believe this is... He's a masterful story, uh, storyteller with his instruments. We've kind of proven this by now. His, his choice of using punk for this, folk for that. He really does know his styles and his instrumentation. When he starts rambling, which has been most of the songs I truly love on this album... It's a master storyteller who knows the story but hasn't really seemed to prepare it completely. He didn't write it line by line, but as it comes out, it's just a natural flow. He knows what he has to do, and every once in a while, yes, he's got to reference a different point or bring up a side story or something like that, and that's when we're getting these extra instruments. That's when we're getting something new with the piano. That's when we're getting something interesting done with the cello. Then rather than say it's rambly, I would simply say he composed this to make it feel as if these sounds were arbitrary. Because exactly. obviously yeah. if you were like in a haunted house environment, then, well, they're arbitrary sounds. Things falling from random corners of the house is what's going to really make you Eddie un- uneasy. We go from this track to something that's very different again we're, we're <laughs> shifting like very hard um structures here the, the sounds produced sometimes can be resembled in other songs but we're hitting hard structures that i think are giving life to this album in a very interesting way towards the tail end so track nine is werewolf gimmick which as a wrestling fan is like i roll my eyes at that title because it's like there's some pretty bad gimmicks in wrestling and so if someone claims to be a werewolf in wrestling it's like you don't oh, want, come on you don't want to see the you guy stepping out from behind the curtain onto stage with a wolf howling in the background yeah that is a trope of wrestling but anyway this song really starts more aggressively than probably any other track on the record except maybe the punk track it just has this kind of uh feral rumble which i mean with a song called werewolf gimmick okay a feral rumble makes sense and it kind of is backed by a strumming guitar that's on overdrive and repeat and just going 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 that gives it a, a fleshed out structure in a very specific way well anya you were the first one to notice this is probably about as metal as they they got on this album at least yeah um, no i was so happy to hear the metal i mean john i think john worcester's drumming on this just shines because it's so good and it's really driving on it and i'm so happy because i know john is such a fan of metal i was like yeah this is his metal song it's specifically in that double kick i think yeah. uh, the double kick drum i believe it was the kick and you know there's a tendency obviously amongst uh metal drummers too well most people can't you know use one foot in the kick and play that fast this is like 16th notes uh so whether that's like done in post or or done by the extra drummer band member i don't know (laughs) but it's pretty cool which is the thing is i didn't hear metal i heard surf rock i heard like minor level of of speed as metal as the album gets which (laughs) says yeah but when you take that and the rhythm guitars in that same sort of vein you you throw punk on top of it it that was where it starts getting to be interesting because the vocals are very much not the metal, they're very much not surf rock. They very are that revisiting that punk style. And it's it works so well throughout the song. Especially when the I guess quote lead guitar starts interjecting, starts adding a lot of not really flourishes, but its own little rhythm section throughout the rest of the song. It's 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 almost that guy who's reached that breaking point, which is what the content of the song is is explaining. He doesn't do rehearsals anymore. He doesn't need it anymore. He just shows up and does his thing. That's how he starts off. That's what he's talking about. I'm just the guy who shows up, because in the previous track he got you know messed up, and now 
he's done with it. He's just doing it. He's phoning it in. This is just, you know, all attitude and no more of the character. Well, there's in the lyrical composition, there's eye rolling here also. I mean, from his perspective, he's singing about this guy and the way he talks about this guy with a, a full werewolf outfit and this gimmick you can feel the eye rolling um um snarkiness you know it, it's really there in the structure and story of this song which i think is an interesting perspective because you haven't gotten really that kind of i'm done with this attitude yet and this whole track is just intended to sort of ramp up the intensity and rile you up for blue balls <laughs> is that the way you see it well i mean in I other think... words there's no real threat there no the yeah person it comes out it's a pure gimmick this is not you know going to be a satisfying there's no uh, follow-through on this this intense gimmick yeah and it's really interesting too is that this follows uh john doneal's kind of love of horror i i follow him on tumblr and he posts a lot of like old horror movie posters and things like that and i mean you have this one which is about werewolves you have the lines uh, some sniveling local baby face with an angle he can't sell, full werewolf off the buckle like an angel straight from hell. It's cheesy. It's like cheesy horror, but it's great because you have this one and then you have um, songs like Mike Myers' Resplendent, which is about, you know, the horror movie. You have How to Embrace a Swamp Creature, which is about a swamp thing. You have uh, Goddamn These Vampires. Like, he loves this kind of gimmicky, shticky horror. And I'm not saying that this song, I think, like, because of the vocals and because of the beat behind it, I think we are supposed to be scared of this werewolf. But in the end, yeah, it's it's a wrestler that's being a werewolf. Those lyrics you read almost ring closely to uh, Judas Priest's Redeemer of Solos, Souls, <laughs> which we reviewed back in episode 105, and it was horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> At least that as far was, as what we encountered. That was trying to Because it was a whole gimmick. Full serious. This one, there's an There's obvious... some tongue-in-cheek nature to this. Well, we it's don't a... know what Judas Priest thought. <laughs> but it was... It was, a, it was a chore. It was a test of our patience. <laughs> From here we go to the track Luna, which, to follow Werewolf Gimmick, I think is a nice pairing, uh, title-wise anyway. Uh, and speaking I'm of sure... nice pairings, there was this little thing just in the previous track that I will note. I don't know whether it was totally incidental, but I felt as if the, the guitars in the previous track were echoing uh, the drums in the track before that, as if there was some kind of little call and response carrying over that theme from the drums and the guitar. Could be, could be accidental. It could be. I mean, it's, it, it's definitely possible. A lot of these tracks, especially toward the end of this album, really seem to flow, so I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. track. So with track 10, what I like about Luna is that it's got this, aesthetically, it's got a strolling kind of cityscape feel. Like, it's got this mellow tone. You feel like it's the city at night. But it's got a sort of slap beat to it that does keep it alive this yes. is not a slumbering city this is still it feels uh, contempl- about it feels contemplative but contemplative within a realm of noise and activity well this brought us back i think to the more alt pop feel mm-hmm. uh it's it, sort it's of ben's fold style sort of uh the piano this time is a little more reduced it guides out with much more what's much, much longer drawn out chords um, the vocals are, are soft. What I think is interesting at this point in the album, too, is we're starting to get a cynicism that's surfacing. And it's in the tone, it's in the music, it's in the lyrics. And I think it's really interesting that where something was so pure and almost fantastical in the beginning, like as you grow up, you learn things either as the wrestler, I'm sure, and well, as the fan about the thing you love. And you, it, it's hard not to become cynical about it. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting for this, for me, is that this track reminds me a lot, and I think you already mentioned it, it reminds me a lot of the opener, Southwestern Territory, just in kind of the oh, yeah. kind of Ben Foldsy sounding. It has a kind of slow piano singing over top of it part. Um, but the lyrics are actually fairly intense. Uh, to me, it actually reminds me a lot of Sax Romner uh, from the album Heretic Pride, where it's like watching it go up out front on the lawn 
Uh, you have like tongues of tongues of fire that reach up for the sky, burn hard, burn hard, smoldering pieces landing in the yard. It's like a it's a very sinister song, but it comes off as very mellow. Mm-hmm. It, maybe everything sounds mellow after is, werewolf gimmick. Well, even well, <laughs> I, there is it is appropriate comparison because of course you have that the lyrics the way it begins. It's all gone. It's all gone. And you go back to the first track. That's that that bridge that I pointed out. I try to remember what life was like long ago, but it's gone. You know, and you have this. It's, I don't know, call and respond. The the structure of the song has a very piano bar kind of feel. And I think the reason I feel like this song is very contemplative is just because it got very cynical. But with this mellow music, to me, screams cynicism or introspective. Like, you know, you're re-examining yourself, your life and everything around you. And the the lyrics kind of give, give that. Especially ba- like the aggressive lyrics mixed with the slow music is what gives that introspe- introspective tone, I and, feel. And that's similar to how I feel about Fire Editorial, where I feel like the music and the lyrics are like so different that it, it does create an interesting kind of conflict between the two. If you want to talk about conflict, the, the very end of the track, Stay free, stay free, invisible armies march by night for me. Stay on my guard, burn hard, rage on, all gone. Pause in mid-stride, pause in mid-stride, and ride and ride and ride and ride. There's your conflict. I mean, that's a conflict, but in some sense, it's also that burn hard, rage on, all gone. There's also that, like, well, you know, are you going to uh, burn long or, or, or burn bright and die yeah. fast? You know, that whole homage. Like, it's, I don't know. I, I, I feel some sympathy, I think, for the, the, the old and dying wrestler a little bit. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard a little bit if, you, if you're not, like, immersed in that environment. But I, I really do appreciate the way he... He uh he builds it the way he idolizes it and he does this again all through music um especially at the tail end around like uh three minutes ten seconds you reintroduce that sort of like Henry Mancini esque uh violin technique where it's the rapid tremolo as you do when a in like a spaghetti western where you know the character is riding off into the sunset as the lyrics hint at and then it just sort of continues out over the same exact drum pattern like almost like a gallop beneath a much more grander backdrop i absolutely adored that outro i thought it was one of the best outros on the album in fact maybe next only to the uh the piano solo what i like about that outro also is it connects really well to track 11 track 11 unmasked with an exclamation point to be noted um has this guy and guitar feel to start but truthfully what i like about this song from an emotional place is that the when a, a, a masked wrestler loses his mask or is unmasked, it's a sign of shame or a sign of... Uh, it's, it's like a very... You're very vulnerable in that moment. What I like is the structure of the song as a whole emotionally takes that vulnerable, low-key, very personal feel, this feeling of being exposed, and it's conveyed in the instrumentation and the lyrics, which I think is really awesome for the overall structure. First, the vocals are being doubled. Uh, there's a backup going on, and that the way it's being mixed is creating a very husky sort of piece. And that, that right there, I mean, we're getting emotions throughout this album, but when you go husky, I mean, that is just instantly going to bring a vulnerable side to it. It seems as if the vocals are just doubled by this extra layer that, that fills it out into this very crisp, almost like deeper registered tone that, that kind of contrasts with everything else. I think it's about as, as crisp and impactful as the vocals have yet been, considering that one of my main points earlier in this album has been that, you know, the vocals are kind of lowly mixed, especially when everything else seems to be a little bit more upbeat, and it just seems like that's he could go the extra mile in that particular department, and then here it seems like he's using this extra layer to, to fill that out and, and, and serve that role. When you're talking about the content, and when you, especially in the the choruses, 
The first one, and just after midnight, when it feels like it's getting late, I will reveal you. I will reveal you. That is... That is... There's so many entendres in, in, in this. There's so many meanings in that sort of a phrase work. I will reveal you. Well, let's get very specific. Yes, unmasking a showing of the who the, the luchador actually is is the death of his career in many cases, in most cases. But I will reveal you. It's also talking about like showing the person who they really are and it's being presented in that way simultaneously while still remaining within the story itself also another little musical technique that i absolutely adored at the moment he says that i will reveal you there's an emphasis there that's where the chord change occurs and it's incredibly stark despite the fact that the texture really just kind of continues it's this little subtle shift where you feel the the impact of that i will reveal you as if he was just he, he really was just uh stripped naked it's it's that it, it is that impactful and yet the the, the text the, everything else is the same the drums just con continue but it's the chord change and that has all the all the weight of it i mean i think one of the most interesting parts on this going with the whole story of the the taking off of the mask and losing it and i mean in the end you kind of find out that it was the person themselves unmasking themselves when they're late at night looking in the mirror they will reveal you uh but it's the line that really struck me in the song was uh like they've sawn off your cast the idea of something that's been put on you artificially that's holding you in there and then when it's taken off that it's it's still part of your body but it suddenly feels new uh i think it's just such a striking lyric right there it's it's as if the the cast itself atrophied what was underneath it and that reveal at the end was was beautiful when the two characters, the I and the you, were revealed to be the one because they were speaking as two different individuals. Crowds have gone, just a few hangers on. Come to see me finally tear the stitchings at last. And you don't care. You look almost relieved down there. Like you're free, like you can breathe now, like they saw on off your cast. Just one more sleeper to see through. That, it's... At first, it comes off as a, a fan and the wrestler, a fan and the hero. But this is the hero finally shucking that mask that has been on top of him from way earlier in the album, from almost the inception of the album itself. It is a great story piece to really start putting a, not a final chapter, but a real pivotal point in the late game of this story that he's crafting. I think that this could be, to me, one of the most powerful tracks simply because of what it represents for a wrestler, especially if you're a wrestling fan and a luchador fan. It also is missing percussion. And that's happened a few times where there's a lot of percussion light parts, but having near nothing here means you're focused completely on the vocal. You so get, you're feeling what he's saying. You only get the thump of the piano, um, which is, well, technically a percussive instrument, but it, you do have that right at that the chord change that I described. Come to think that that's the only little piece of, of textural change that you do get, is the piano is really down more toward the low end, and it adds to the depth and the weight of that moment. I will reveal you. We really cool. <laughs> it, it is. It honestly is really cool, and I feel like we're ramping up to something, obviously, as we get towards the end of the record. We've only got two tracks left. And I think that when we go from Unmasked to the next track, track 12, it takes an interesting turn tonally. The Ballad of Bull Ramos has this kind of 
it is more lighthearted, it more in the vein of acceptance and lightheartedness. And maybe not happiness, but at least accepting your lot in life where you are and feeling good well, about it. We only it. perceive that in context, though, because Correct. of what we went through in order to get here. Yeah. But it is very similar brand of song as we got more like track two, track three, track mm -hmm. four. Yeah, and it's... it's a little it, bit goofy, a little bit weird, Alish. <laughs> yeah, heavy, momentum-driven with the beat and everything that's going on with it. It's 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 very much along the lines of The Legend, track two. That's that's really a kind of focus for me. Um, it's also the same sort of storytelling of track two. Drive a great big truck when I'm old, when I'm old. Haul the wrecks down to the wreck yard. Help the boys unload. Keep my hair nice and long because I can, because I can. And of my old friends who have no place to turn to... They know to call me anytime they come through. And the way he, he really compacts those two lines very tightly, this I can't I can't do it that fast. There's no way I'm gonna do that fast. One way in which he actually makes this pretty goofy is, is the use of the upright bass here. It goes down like chromatically and it just feels it, it's kind of a silly use of the instrument considering you picture like, oh alright, the walking bass, you know, the, the more standard bass drive, but this is just like this uh kind of gradual little slumping down. It's almost like a cartoonish figure. So, you know, I don't know if that's like Weird Al brand of comedy, but it's a humorous uh, I think use. I think the humorousness comes just from how kind of almost jaunty the track feels and the lyrics themselves. I mean, essentially, it's the story of a someone who used to be a wrestler and now is a truck driver and is satisfied with people knowing him or not knowing him. It's like we just came from a track that really, like, idolized it, right? And it's like looking back into the past, again, the old steadfast... Uh, uh, die-hard warrior, and now all of a sudden it's like, well, now the aftermath. You know, he's a truck driver, and it's like this has that Sunset Boulevard feel, though. And yeah. the, the, the sake of like that, you're really washed up, but you don't claim you were. The whole like, yeah, aren't you that old wrestler with the bullwhip? Yes, sir. That's me. I'm him. It's like, well, it was. I'm not small. It was the pictures that got small. It's that kind of feel. And there's a little bit of a sadness that I think follows this track uh, in that vein. He goes back and forth between very, being very serious about something and then just having a, a little bit of a sense of humor on the matter. I think a thing that's interesting is that when we were doing the listen through, uh, Matt, you had said that this was a truck driving song. It yeah. felt like a truck driving song. Uh, I had said it, to me, it almost had a comparison to the band Cake in yeah. just kind of, like you said, like the jauntiness of it, that it's, you know, it's kind of upbeat even if the lyrics aren't really upbeat. But if, for me, I think these lyrics are upbeat. We, we talk about, like, oh, the poor guy and stuff like that. And when you look at it, it's... And the story is that like he stepped on broken glass and couldn't use his foot, and now he's a truck driver. And then in the end, you have uh, get around fine on one leg, lose a kidney, then go blind, sit on my porch in Houston, let the good times dance across my mind. It's it's saying that you know bad things can happen to you in life, but this guy's very optimistic and happy, and it ends. I mean, well, I don't know if we want to wait till we're done discussing it to talk about that. It's a very optimistic ending. But it's still tinted. It's tinted by just time. I think that's that's what I think he got across very well here. But that's my point. He already did that in previous tracks. He executed it in a, in a more serious fashion, and I think there is much more. Just you know, it's, it's plain comedy. I, I don't I don't think there's really much more to it than that because he has he can see things from both angles. Um, well, and he doesn't want to immerse you. I don't think he wants to spend an entire album. I get this from this artist that he doesn't want to spend an entire album in one particular thing. He wants to play with the same theme a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, that's apparent. I mean, we're always going back to the themes we've mentioned, but this one does, 
I mean, I do like, though, that it does, what Anya said, that it does end, like, with him being satisfied with his lot in life, and that, mm-hmm. that I think, is a great way to wrap up the track, and an interesting way to kind of take us into the final song, you know, being happy with your lot in life and kind of having a jauntier song, and then going to Hair Match, which, by title alone, seems silly, but it, it's really not. This song is very close to the chest, very uh, earnest, and it... I think that the kind of hollow tinny sound of the guitar in this kind of gives that kind of deep feeling to the track, kind of giving it this depth. Depth and deep. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Hair Match is is, a, is the kind of track where I, I actually enjoyed it for being so stripped down. Obviously, went back and forth on this album in terms of, like, do you enjoy the minimalism of... of uh, of the mountain goats, or do you more prefer when they you know, reach out and, and incorporate more instruments? And we tend to see that as complex generally. But there was something very mysterious about this track, and I think it was owed to the fact that it was more stripped down. I, I, it was something very mysterious in the pacing of it, and it's also uh, because of the chord changes themselves. There's this little dose of, of, of dissonance that was added in, in uh, the last couple of chords feel very, very dire. And then he tries to pick it up, and it's like this round of uh, trying to incorporate all the different emotions that he's tried to sort of ping-pong you back and forth from one track to the other, and now it's all condensed here. This is an interesting track thematically because it, it up front, a hair match, is well, when the loser loses his hair. Yeah, That's the winner it, shaves the loser's head, or there might be some stipulation who shaves the head, but the loser gets their head shaved, yes. Except this is presented as the death of a hero before his adoring fan. Yeah. And it is timeless in that way. This It is borderline brilliant in that way, because the content, while it's presenting something that's that if it wasn't wrestling, if it wasn't the pageantry would be so beautiful and so serious at the same time. It would be watching the the most beautiful train wreck you've ever seen. Cheap electric razor from the thrifty down the street. Two guys down around your ankles so you'll stay put in your seat. Buzzing razor held aloft and just about to strike. I loved you before I even ever knew what love was like. Okay, yeah, childish, kind of weird, like, okay, buzzing razor... Okay, they're holding you down and shaving your head. But that final line, I loved you before I, ever, I even ever knew what love was like. It shows the importance of what's going on and the character. So, yeah, you can make this a World War One, World War Two, like something horrible story. Or you can make it the exact opposite spectrum, which this sort of is. But it doesn't lose its impact. This was such a beautiful finale for this album for me that I, I fell in love with it instantly. And... I think it goes with, like we were saying, it, it does have that childlikeness, that the idea that, you know, we know that the wrestlers, this was a prearranged thing, that somebody was going to lose, they were aware that their head was going to get shaved. Um, but when you go to kind of the wrestling culture and the, the K-Fab idea of everybody's in on this, everybody believes it, um, we're all going to go in this together and it, we're, we're going to react to it. Uh, but you have the kids who don't know that. And you take it back to uh, the legend of Chavo, where it's you know like I want I want all of your opponents to die at night, and you are the best person in the entire world, and they really believe it. Similar in this one, it's like, oh my god, their head is being shaved. I have lost my hero. Yeah, mm. it, it's this this it feels devastatingly final in these moments, like like almost like comparative to death, and it's not obviously, but it's just from the perspective of the author of the person speaking, 
it has that impact and i think that's what's so palpable about this song i was feeling borderline stressed when i was listening to this and it had to do a little bit with those chord changes but it was even more than that it was the style of picking the uh the, the pull-offs here you can almost like feel this or, or hear the sound of like the sweat pulling off like his his hand is just gripping the guitar so slightly and then amidst that you have an ex extremely clean runs a clean picking everything is just it feels almost as like he's at his his most technical here but i i love just like the, the the sort of sticky nature even though it's a weird way to describe it that this uh that he approaches this from the guitar standpoint the instrumentation and as as anya had pointed out earlier it sounds like uh, an old favorite of ours might have influenced this track, so own plets come up on here or palette, however it's pronounced. Uh, um, okay, yeah, we palette. we spent the whole podcast saying palette. I'm aware. Um, <laughs> so so Owen Palette, he, he they've toured together, the Mountain Goats and him, and so this they've song worked together. They've worked together. This song has a very heavy influence to his style of music and composition, and I feel like. It, it really does, like, I mean, it, that album, one of the reasons I love it is because how emotionally charged it was. And so to have this kind of sound that's similar to that made it even more powerful to me as well. Yeah, it's that, like, that light bouncing on the strings that Owen Pallet does a lot uh, that you hear in this track, that you hear in Hair Match. Uh, when it's on its own, it's so striking because it's such a strange noise to hear. But it, what I think is really cool about it is that when you hear it in the background during the actual lyrics it almost kind of sounds like crickets to me. And it makes mm. me think of at the end where it says, out in the parking lot, you look up at the stars. It makes me think about this kind of like quietness of the crickets, the hair has been shaven, the fans are out in the parking lot, and you're all alone. An emptiness, a finality. I mean, it's this is this track ended up being, you know, the period I really wanted in this album. That sort of just like, it's almost like a chair squeaking, but at the same time, it feels like it, it could actually be coming from the, the, the strings itself. Like, it's sort of like that that uh, sound you get when you would mute the strings, but yet it doesn't feel like it could be doing that, you know, in, in, in such a, a regular round as it, as it does. It's just another great use of texture in this album. Something he excels at, I think, at least above all others. That's a good point, Steve. Thank you. I thought it was. <laughs> Do you want to take us into our wrap-up, Steve, since you had our final point? Uh, this album is kind of a strange animal from an arc perspective because I think it really keeps playing with your expectations. Uh, there was this feeling, at least as of the beginning, that I thought I was going to get this more like fluidly composed work. Well, it's not quite that. I, 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 I think a good portion of this, like upwards of 75-80% of this, is still could really stand on its own as pop tracks. Um, they're still good pop tracks. I don't think any... Uh, they're, 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 I don't think they break out in the same capacity as a lot of other, like, you know, more folk-oriented tracks, because that does seem to be this album's default, and I will say nothing for not knowing the discography of, of uh, this artist for knowing what their, their default is regularly, but on this album, that seems to be where this wants to sit. And normally, he uses it with very, uh, with very distinctive purpose. That is to kind of narrate the tale of, of these old wrestlers and, and, and his experience therein and, and drench you with nostalgia and bring you back the time, immerse you in his world. And I think they're successful, but in, in at least just that bare bones narration. But they're only merely successful in that. I believe the album shines more in the, in the sections where it, it, it branches out and makes use of other instruments. Because then you can, you can relay more things. You're not just merely a, a narration. It's not just a slab or a canvas for you to, sh you know, paint these portraits of figures. Instead, you're actually making you feel what you felt at the time. And he does that 
through the the clarinets and make you feel the warmth and and his personal connection to it as early as the first track he makes you feel it in term the 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 tension as you're watching and almost like digging your fingernails into the seat uh with the use of those like string squeals and the horror elements in the background all of these are drastically visceral um techniques all through the use of of texture and instrumentation uh, you know Call me an, an instrumentation snob, but I just believe that's where he's he's able to really step out as an artist. Some artists can make entire careers off of minimalist guy and guitar work. I, I, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the the specialty of him. I I tend to go for the other things, and he's marvelous at it. So from a textural standpoint, I think this really kind of breaks barriers. But as far as I'm concerned, because the majority of the album tends to slink back to the narration for. You know, like I said, a good majority. I, I think this is just like a hair below the mark for me. I believe this is a 3.9. I agree with much, but not all of what you said. The storyline uh, aspects do a lot. The narration does a lot to really impart both a story of a wrestler and a solid like history of just about anybody. Something that you can really get behind because these are ups and downs that everybody goes through in the course of their life and it is presented with such a very stimulating idea but that said the lyrics the stories were great but there was no standoutish lyrics I, i'd have to say if you if you start taking them line by line that gets kind of hard it's the whole chunk of the verse that really spoke to me same thing with the instruments. It was a whole chunk of the chorus work or the verse work that spoke to me. I was missing the moments. That's that's what Steve was talking about, getting outlandish, going with the clarinets. It was those moments, those, quote, pan flute solos. That one thing that really shakes you up, turns your head, and everything like that. But I can't discredit the, the beauty of the real story that was involved here, the real theme that was going on here. So I'm on the other side of the four from you, Steve. I'm at a... 4.2. Okay. We, um, get, we get specific. We really fine. do. You're scoffing. We're, we get specific. It's fine. Um, you can add as many decimals as you want. No, no. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, this album, I mean, exists in a space that, now that I know he's worked with, with Owen Pallett, that really doesn't surprise me, um, especially in the flourishes we heard. I can hear that, but also yeah. from an emotional and personal place. I mean, as someone who grew up watching wrestling, who doesn't watch it anymore, for the record, if you if you care, my favorite was always The Undertaker because he took theatricality to the max. Um, but you more, know, more than Gold Dust. Fair point. Gold Dust. <laughs> anyway, um, that's for us and the wrestling fans out there. Um, Fan moment. <laughs> the the thing about this album that I think I really connected with is as someone who grew up watching wrestling, as someone who has felt some of the feelings here, and as someone who loves the story work, I feel like it's above a four for me as well. I totally hear where Steve's coming from and from his perspective and how he described it. I really get that. You I, can still sell me. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I really hear where Steve's coming from, but I think for me... We talk a lot about emotional connection and arc and, and all and theme. I mean, the theme is strong here, obviously, in multiple places. It's not one solid theme. It's solid if you're a wrestling fan. It's solid if you're a new dad. It's solid if you're a touring artist. And I think that diversity in the theme, the fact that Steve didn't even recognize that it was a wrestling album initially because he saw the themes he wanted to based on the way it was delivered, is a powerful delivery device. That alone gives it, I give it extra points for. On top of that, 
the most powerful emotional songs were so powerful and the ones that weren't were still engaging just not you know you know bawling your eyes out or or shaking your fist in anger engaging it was a different kind of engagement so for me th this on an entertainment level also gets high scores i think i do agree that in certain moments on this album there are points where he sticks with a regular form that's still intricate for him but it's something i can hear somewhere else <laughs> and from other people who've been doing it longer. But I don't think that's enough to discredit how powerful the structure and shape of this album is. So for me, it's definitely over a four for me. It's not as high as Owen Pallet because the thing that Owen Pallet did is every track seemed so unique and so intricate. Whereas this is fitting into a format within the full record scope that I'm now having heard it going, oh, okay, I get where this artist comes from and I can hear his sound. But I still think it's a fantastic work. It's not upper, upper, upper echelon, but for me, it gets a 4.4. .4. I think that it's broaching that because of the artistry in how multi-diverse this album is. And I think that's where it really stands out for me. And that's why I'm rating it so much higher. It was a good try. But the, the at least that you put in there for yeah. the for the other tracks, uh, the, the tracks, you know, that, that maybe weren't reaching the same heights, that, that, that at least still was not enough for me in those particular tracks. I still found myself kind of waiting for the good stuff, even through those. So... I'm not sold yet. One more. Okay. So as the long-standing superfan of the group here, uh, this was a tough thing to sit down and kind of rate. So amongst, and, and while we were doing the listen through, I was kind of educating about like, well, the, the pre-4AD fans really don't like the 4AD fans and vice versa and stuff like that. And this is tricky because this is now moving into the merge territory of the band where they're on another label. Uh, All Eternal Zek, Transcendental Youth, and this album. Uh, I will say that the last three albums I like. Every one of the albums has songs that I like. This is a band that has over 300 songs under their belt. It's a lot. It's hard to find an album where you like every single one of their songs. I have those. <laughs> it's called We Shall All Be Healed and Sunset Tree and Tallahassee, where I love basically every single song off of those albums. Um, but I think it jumps around a lot. I think it's a good tester and I think it's a good kind of taste maker for what you want out of this album. It got me in like watching wrestling and being interested in wrestling and understanding luchador and kind of small circuit wrestling culture, which is really impressive for me. Uh, in in the tracks like Heel Turn Two, Stab to Death Outside of San Juan, Werewolf Gimmick, The Ballad of Bull Ramos, Hair Match, I think are all amazing ones. I would say in comparison to all Mountain Goats albums, all like forty of them that are out there. Um, I would put this as a four out of five. Yeah. All right, you're bumping me up to a four. I'll give it a four. I just, I, I don't, I really don't mean to understate how much I really do love some of the, the, the shining beacons of this album. And it has happened before and it will happen today where those just like kind of can make me ignore the stuff that I'm like only okay with. Because that piano solo yeah. is, is literally going to make it into the year in review for one of my favorite moments of the year. What, what worries me a little bit is how much I like this record and how much you say it's so unlike the previous <laughs> records. Like, I immediately want to jump into their discography, but now I'm afraid I may not like it as much. That said, also, well, I've We had... have Music A to Z for that. We can make it a recommendation to them. Sure, that's true. Um, and they've covered Owen Pallet. The so. Mountain Goats. As long as they don't count the the, then we should get to them around their M slot, which is probably <laughs> like a year away. <laughs> Um, I think, though, for me, that I, I think why it stands where it is is because of the, how much this album means to me. 
after only hearing it a few times and I think I'll jump into the discography with more open eyes because I like this so much. I find when I get in bands later and they've changed to a more produced sound from a less produced sound, I still like the less produced stuff. So, we'll and see. I think it's fair to say uh, for the fans out there of the Mountain Goats, I said that I really wanted them to listen to Sweden after we did this review so they could see where this band started from <laughs> and their completely different sound. But one of the things that is good about this album is that it does jump around. Like I said, you, you get stuff off of here that sounds like it's from All Hail West Texas. You have stuff that sounds like it's from Heretic Pride. You have stuff that sounds like Life of the World to Come. It's a, it's a good variation. So if you like a song on here and you're around a Mountain Goats fan, they can probably recommend three other songs out of, like, the 400 songs that they've written. And it can please everyone in that way also. Yeah, there's something there for everybody. Um, So we'll start wrapping up the show now. Um, Thank you so much, Anya Kista, for joining us and bringing this album. It's Um, been a pleasure. It has absolutely been a pleasure to have you, and we'll hope you'll come back in the coming year when Kanye has something. She's promised. She has promised. I'm so excited to talk about Kanye. Um, I can't wait for the arguments. I I can't wait. So before before we get to my pick for next week, um, Steve, do you have a fan mail for us? A spam mail? A spam mail. You tried to jump around it. Attractive section of content. I just stumbled upon your website, and yes, that's spelled with an X, <laughs> and in accession to capital to assert that I get in fact enjoyed account your blog posts. Anyway, I will be subscribing to your feeds, and that is uh, the also form of two, and even I achievement you access that's spelled with the Z consistently <laughs> quickly. Uh, that is by the gorgeous oddloady.pl. <laughs> <laughs> Might be one of the most um, intricately created spam mails we've had. Is that probably the most spelling errors of real words as opposed to just random letters being thrown on the page? Um, so for that, uh, good job. So, so my pick from next to, for next week is returning to an artist, but not necessarily in his original form for a return. So we did Godsticks last week. We did something new this week. For my pick next week, we are doing the album So There by Ben Folds, a Uh solo work. And it is defined as an album that includes eight chamber pop songs and one piano concerto performed with the Nashville Symphony. Ah, this should be interesting. So this was a big project that he's been working on for a while and he's mentioned in interviews for a long time, so I'm excited to hear it. Um, We haven't reviewed Ben Folds, and of course that was with Ben Folds 5 uh, back in episode 15. Correct. So now it's just him and breaking off into wildly different work yes and so in wrapping up before we uh we totally close the podcast anya is there anything you would like to promote upcoming events and stuff oh my gosh i have so much stuff i could promote uh mainly if you were interested in what we talked about earlier in the show uh you can find d20 burlesque d20 burlesque.com we are on facebook we're on twitter we're on instagram if you want to learn more about me uh, I'm facebook.com slash Anya Keister Burlesque. That's A-N-J-A-K-E-I-S-T-E-R. I'm also on Instagram where I post lots of backstage burlesque photos, which are always fun to look at. <laughs> Do you have any upcoming shows? Uh, this will be going up this coming Friday. Do you have we any shows coming do. up? Yes, October 24th. Uh, will be our Halloween show. We're doing classic horror, so we're going to have things such as like the Addams Family. I will be bringing this Cthulhu act, so if you haven't seen it, a good time to uh, come give it a viewing. Awesome. Um, thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I'm excited for that October show. I like classic horror stuff, so that should be fun. Um, will you do us kindly and actually sign us off as well for this week? Of course. Music is life, and life is good.
If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.